All right. Well, thank you for joining this episode of The Freed Thinker. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Today, I am joined uh, with a couple of friends, Jimmy and Vincent, the fake Red Bonson, both from the Third Man uh, YouTube channel and uh, and uh, and blog and just do a lot of uh, fantastic things. Lots of people will know them um, from, from uh, basically all these discussions went back into, into the day uh, with Council of Google Plus with me way, way back when. Uh, and just two two really uh, brilliant guys uh, who who make me feel dumb uh, with how smart they are all the time. So uh, I am going to bring them back in, gentlemen. How are you? Doing good. Well, thanks for having us on the show. Good, good. Well, thank you for joining. Uh, Vincent's not on camera because he's terrible to look at. Jimmy is not on camera because he's too handsome and makes me look terrible. Uh, so I asked him to to. This is true. Not steal the show. Uh, No, Jimmy. Jimmy, once you get your your internet, if you're able to get back on video, uh, it's not so grainy. Come on, come on back in. Um, Vincent, the fake Greg Bonson, always, always uh, the the man of mystery. Um, So before before we jump in, we're gonna watch we're gonna watch two videos uh, just for those uh, who are watching. This is just gonna be a shooting the breeze. We we have a couple videos we're gonna do. Uh, I have a, a, a very strange day where I have nothing going on, so I'm gonna steal a, uh, a you know a play from uh, from uh, you know logical plausible probable and just do a kind of a standing invite. If anyone wants to jo- join, come go. Uh, we'll see how long this goes. There's no really time frame. Uh, uh, Bonson, you're you're at work, so I know you might get interrupted here and there. Uh, Jimmy, I know you have a couple things to do here, and I think you said about an hour or so. So. Um, as people as people come and go, if you want to join, I put a uh, a link uh, in the very first comment of the thread. Head on in over there, and you can check that out. If you have any questions, you can uh, you can let us know. So, uh, what are we doing today? So, we are going to first we are going to respond to or, or, or listen through and respond, give our thoughts on um, Alex O'Connor's opening statement from his debate uh, with Jonathan McClatchy from I think about three weeks ago uh, on his debate with uh, theism versus naturalism, which is a better account of reality. Uh, And Alex gives a pretty interesting opening statement. So uh, you guys have any, have anything before we, before we jump in? No, go for it. Let's see what happens. All right. We'll, we'll solve world hunger and everything. And I think also eventually uh, Vincent, if we have time, you and I wanted to, and and Jim, if you're still around, we also wanted to talk about, uh, Idol killer Warren McGrew's open theism podcast discussion with uh, philosopher Ryan T. Mullins. Um, and we'll talk about that too if we get the chance. All right. So um, I am going to put the playback speed on time and a half um, just for time constraints. Uh, so, no, this is not Alex O'Connor's real voice. Let's see. I need to share. Green. Cool, cool. Make sure we are cranked up to 11. I think if I tested this last time, my volume has to be blaring for this to go through. All right. Uh, let me know if it's not loud enough and we'll go from there. And and then as always, uh, you know, if you if you want me to stop, just say stop and uh, and we'll we'll say our comments. Thank you. Uh, of course, Brian and Jonathan and Sattler College and ladies and gentlemen for coming. Uh- Volume's good. Yeah, volume sounds good. All right, cool. Uh, this is the second time that I've engaged with uh, Jonathan publicly. Uh, I'm glad to pick up where we left off. We didn't quite get to the bottom of God's existence last time. I'm confident we might get there today. Uh, I wonder, it'd be quite interesting just to get a fill of the room, actually. How many people here are Christians? 
Is that, is that the time? <laughs> okay, well, it looks like I've got my work cut out for me, but that's my favourite <coughs> I think. Um, of course, this is an opening statement, so I won't respond to the arguments you just heard just yet. Instead, I want to uh, make my own case that upon uh, an honest analysis of the world we find ourselves in, it should compel us to dismiss the hypothesis of a supernatural create. And I should say, by, by the way, uh, uh, I, I've listened to this before, but this is this is the first time through for both of you, right? Correct. Yeah, I've so never seen this before. This will, be, this will be somewhat off the cuff, on the fly, uh, you know, street apologetics as we're listening through. Uh, what would we say if someone was was saying this in front of us? So, we'll go from there. I will not be asking you to look in ancient scripture, nor to the beginning of the universe, nor indeed down the microscope. Instead, just to your uh, direct experience of the world and facts about the lives of people within it. I will, however, indulge in a brief biblical recital um, because I want to begin with a book, uh, with a reading from the book of Psalms. So if you all turn to Psalm 139, unless, of course, you've already committed this famous passage to memory. Verse 7 onwards reads, Where can I go from your presence? Or where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hands will guide me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. This poem in its entirety is given by the NRSV, a title, The Inescapable God. It's a message of bold reassurance to the believer, reminding them that since God is present everywhere, pervading every inch of our universe, he is, in the happiest sense possible, inescapable. But my first argument, and it's going to be the first of three, uh, against the Bible's atheism flows from the demonstrable fact that this divine consolation is seemingly not offered universally, and often in fact restricted from those who want it the most. I'm going to be making the claim specifically that atheism or naturalism provides a better account for three facts of our universe. The first being the hiddenness of God, the second being the geographical uh, statistical uh, uh, arrangement, shall we say, of religious belief, and the third will be the problem of gratuitous suffering. We'll see if we get time to finish it off. Far from being unable to escape God, there is a very real contingent of non-believers, and I would count myself among their number, who are unable by any means to discover him, who seek and do not find, who knock and receive, as it were, no answer. This strange phenomenon is known as the problem of divine hiddenness. If there is a God, then simply, why is he hidden from so many of us so much of the time? If theism is to offer a sufficient account of reality, then it must offer an account of what J.L. Schellenberg has famously labelled non-resistant non-belief, which he distinguishes from resistant non-belief. It's sometimes said by a theist who wishes to explain uh, the problem of divine hiddenness that people simply disbelieve through their own fault. They're too stubborn. They're purposely blinding themselves to the evidence because they don't want it to be true. They're not approaching the arguments on, uh, honestly with an open heart, and that if they would only do this, then God would surely reveal himself. Such a person would be what Schellenberg calls a resistant non-believer. He disbelieves, in some sense, because he actively resists it. For what it's worth, I do think that such people exist. I think many such people exist. Uh, there are people who come to this debate with their minds already made up. There are people who want it not to be true, that God exists, and in fact wouldn't submit to that truth even if it were true. There was a recent poll run by the Atheist Experience YouTube channel, which I know Jonathan, you're a fan of, uh, which asked, if there was a God, would you worship it? To which an astonishing 85% of respondents said that they would not. There are, however, also people who disbelieve in God, not out of resistance or stubbornness or a hardened heart, but rather due to sheer lack of conviction. Indeed, many such people actively want to be convinced of God's existence and would jump at the chance of entering into a relationship with him if they thought that he did. But no matter how hard they search, they simply find no answer or coming from the heavens. And this is the non-resistant non-believer. Formally, then, Schellenberg's problem of divine hiddenness can be stated as follows. Premise one, if there is a God, he is perfectly loving, something I'm pretty sure Jonathan agrees with. Premise two, if a perfectly loving God exists, non-resistant non-belief does not occur. Premise three, non-resistant non-belief does occur. Four, therefore, no perfectly loving God exists. And the conclusion from the first premise is that therefore there is no God. A loving God, like a Christian God. Yep. Yeah, so I mean, this is a little, this is almost maybe a trivial point for some people, but if you're within the reformed camp, if you're looking at the psychology of unbelief from a Calvinistic point of view, then there are already problems with this, right? Because um, there are so many passages right beside 
Psalm 139, where it's saying, look, the reason why people reject God is because they're sinners. That is the bottom line, right? Right. Yeah. Interestingly, like the more you look at it, the more you, you get into Paul's view of the sinner psychology, the more you, you look at Old Testament stories about how people turned away from God, the Tower of Babel, the things that were going on in the earth when the flood came. People, Calvin said it really well, right? Like pe- people's hearts are idol making machines. People really do worship uh, lowercase g gods in place of God. So the atheist, I don't think, is really any different. Some atheists, you know, their, their uh, motivation for getting up in the morning is they want to make money. Some um, are living because they are just trying to get, you know, whatever sexual pleasure they can find. Everybody's got a God. Uh, so the, part of the issue is like um, the atheist in constructing this argument has a very post-enlightenment idea of the supernatural, whereas for Christians, right, like we look at human beings as fundamentally worshiping, <clears throat> excuse me, worshiping creatures. And uh, the question really then, like from that point of view, is like, who are you going to worship? It's not a matter of the clarity of whether or not God exists. It's just a matter of whether you prefer to um, respect his demand to worship him or whether you're going to autonomously seek some other thing uh, and prefer that instead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I think, um, you know, the, the, the Schellenberg argument, argument is, is interesting and, and important in literature and it gets, a, it gets a lot of responses. Um, but it, it gets a lot of responses from, um, you know, kind of, uh, your, your, your evidentialist or classical, uh, classical apologist, um, you know, the, the William and Craig's, uh, and, and others of the world. And so it, it, it almost, um, generally the response that I see, don't, don't just say, okay, well, you know, biblically we just deny the premise, you know, premise two, we just, we just flat out say that, it, that it's false, <laughs> that, that there is such a thing as a non, you know, or, or maybe it's premise three, that there is such a thing as a non-resistant non-believer, right? Because, yeah. Um, it, it, it just, it just is the case that even, even if, you know, and, and, and he's going to go through and he's going to, he's going to list some things that he does to show that he's non-resistant. Even if you're doing some of these activities, uh, not only does, does the Bible tell us that, uh, that unbelievers are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, um, and that no, you know, no one seeks God, no, not, no, not one. Um, we would say, well, the, the mere fact that you're saying, okay, well, there's this, there's this God hypothesis and I'm the one that gets to stand in judgment and say, is, is there, is there evidence for me to believe God would have to give me evidence so that I believe, right? You're, you're already saying I'm, I'm the, I'm the autonomous arbiter of the, the truth or falsity of this and, and the truth or falsity of my belief. And so, you know, God has to uh, bend, bend the knee to my, to my demands um, for what would make me, make me believe. Um, and, and, and that just is an act of resistance, right? So we, we would just say that there, there, there just is no such thing as a non-resistant non-believer. There, there are, you know, there, there are nice resistant non-believers and, and, and there, there are, there are, uh, you know, there, there are non-believers who, um, are, are not as, uh, overtly, um, 
resistant, but it's just, it just simply is not the case that there's that there's such thing as a non-resistant unbeliever because sin just is resistance. Yeah, and and not to be a broken record or or to belabor the point, but I think it's really I think that's an excellent comment that you're making there, right? That the um, the argument is making it out as if unbelievers around the world just have this innocent, well-to-do, um, self-sufficient perspective on evidence. We can just look at our lives and without going to God for his advice, without having some kind of special revelation from our creator, we're just you know, good to go and in, in interpreting our experience and making it out, you know, however we see fit. It's sort of like you can imagine a very um, naive, um, perhaps slightly tone deaf person walking into some kind of uh, um, theater for an, a, a night of music, right? And they're going to play, you know, the, <clears throat> the Philharmonic is going to play, uh, you know, some kind of Mozart piece. And halfway through, the person who's a little tone deaf is, is like, man, when are these guys going to prove to me that they actually have some musical skill? And you can imagine someone, you know, sort of in the know who's, who is a music enthusiast just looking over across the, the seats thinking like, man, if you're not convinced by the beautiful music that you're presently hearing, like nothing's going to do it for you. Something's wrong with you and yeah. uh, your ears. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Bonson, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I was just thinking, like, oh, how would I try to salvage this claim, right? If I was, like, some analytic thinker, which I'm not, but if I were, I'd probably say, you know, maybe there's some virtue in taking, you know, somebody's personal testimony regarding their own psychology or something. But And then I would just, you know, response to my brain came in, just like oh well you know as insofar as you think the the biblical witness is a pretty good source on human psychology that objection kind of falls by the wayside so it's not really much in the argument yeah yeah i i think at most and we'll see this as he goes through and he and he describes some of the activities i i think what we can say is that is that there's such a thing as non-malicious non-believers right they're they're not um they're not intentionally and self-consciously trying to you know shake their fist at the heavens uh, so to speak, um, but it, but that that doesn't equate to that they're non-resistant. Yeah, this reminds me of like I mean I could just imagine not to bring up another group. But there's a group of people in the theological community which kind of have this like misconception regarding total depravity. You know, it's just like well, unbelievers, you know, they have to be like sniveling beasts, you know, just drooling and you know at any sight or mention of, of anything regarding God and. Uh, you know, just generally, you can say no. You just have to have like the inability to believe or something like that. That's yeah, I think we can look at a biblical example. I mean, you can think of the Pharisees, right? I mean, the Pharisees were uh, were uh, on the exterior about as religious and submitted to God and God's laws you could possibly be. And Jesus says, "Well, I mean, you're entirely resistant to God. You're entirely resistant to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you know, you're you're of your father the devil, right? Like you're you're about as far away from from God." Uh, and, and, and the truth as you can possibly be. Um, but, but they're not, no one would look at them and say, oh, well, they're, they're resisting, you know, re religious religiosity uh, and God belief. Right. So it's, yeah. so it, go ahead. Well, I, and I think that's such, I think that's 
maybe they are really the best example to make the point because I think of like Jesus's specific responses to them, right? Like the two that come to mind are, man, you know, you're really far away from God because you're not close to me because the father is in me and I'm in the father. If you knew my father, you would recognize who I am. Although the other thing he says, right? I think both of these are in John, right? He's like, man, if you don't believe me on the basis of the witness of Moses, you wouldn't believe anything. Like if that didn't convince you, nothing will. That's that is the word of God. It's not. What kind of higher evidence could you possibly have? Yeah, yeah. That that's that was going to be the next passage I was I was going to bring up. Is I, I can't remember if it if it's he says it and then says the parable of of Lazarus the rich man, or after the parable of Lazarus the rich man basically says like, hey, like like pe people could come back from the dead and tell people, and they still wouldn't get it. Like they, they, they have, they have Moses and the prophets and they don't believe that it, it, someone coming back from the dead isn't even convinced them. And it reminds me, you know, I, I think of when, when, uh, some of the arguments I made against, against naturalism and the unfalsifiability of it. And when I say, okay, well, I mean, what, what would count as evidence for you? What, what, what would, what would falsify your naturalism or make you believe that God exists? Because at the end of the day, any any evidence that they would accept from the natural world, they can just say, oh, well, that's just a natural phenomenon or that's an unknown natural phenomenon or, you know, well, we would have to see it with regularity in the natural world. But once you have that, then it just becomes, you know, a natural regular thing. Or they can always just fall back and say, well, you know, we don't know, but hopefully science will figure it out one day. And that's the more intellectually honest answer. Right. You have all these you have all these escape routes. And it just it, it just reminds me it's like okay but like if you if you don't already like if you don't just submit and 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 uh to, to what god has already revealed to you you can always do these like oh well it doesn't meet my threshold right god, god said he's revealed himself in creature in creation in the moral law and 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 in and in revelation and if you're saying well that just doesn't meet my standard right well i i mean you, yeah. you can so self-insulate at that point that you know, nothing, nothing's going to falsify it. And you can say, yeah, well, I'm non-resistant. God isn't meet. I'm non-resistant because God isn't meeting my threshold. That's a hilarious way you put, uh, you, you remind me when you, when you use the word threshold there like that, that makes me think of, um, David Wood's analogy of like the atheists, um, ear, ear earbuds. And he just turns the volume down whenever he wants. He's in control of the, the volume whenever he wants to hear the evidence and when it like <laughs> I just turn up my skepto meter or whatever it is. All right, let's keep let's keep going to his next. Which surely not refutes any willing person from developing a relationship with him. And so if somebody is truly non-resistant and open to receiving God's grace, we should expect them to receive it. That's Schoenberg's assertion that if God exists, then non-resistant non-belief does not exist. I guess also I I, I would point out um there's, there's almost a sense where this this is only this might be challenging to a certain theological commitment of kind of like um very late modern american evangelical type of view you know like a like a like a provisionist you know latent flowers type of view where god is this this like you know kind kindly gray-haired old man just wringing his hands wishing everybody would just come to belief and he just he just he just really he, he really 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 he just really wants everyone you know he's 
Whereas, whereas we're going to point to passage and be like, okay, I mean, th throughout the gospels, right? G Jesus flat out says like, uh, you know, I, I speak in parables so that they won't believe. Like my, my intention is that they're not going to turn and get healed. I, I'm, I'm actively working and speaking in a way so that they won't turn and be healed. Um, and so there, there's almost this sense where there, there, even, even when we talk about what, what is a, what is an all loving God, they've already kind of smuggled in some assumptions, some very unbiblical views about what that, how that even cashes out and what that would even mean. You have to be humble to accept your humility. Like, are, are you denying? Are you, okay, sorry, I'm done. Okay. I love Wayne. No, well, you know what's funny though? You, you know what's funny about this? You, uh, it's funny you were talking about uh, non-malicious unbelief. And uh, what's funny is that for <clears throat> you could say like the the one category of uh, non-resistant unbelievers that are there are like the kind of people who you run into and right and they're you know they're they're unbelievers at the time they're giving these arguments and you're having these conversations with them uh, with them rather but. Uh, it's because they're non-resistant that over time they eventually convert. Like, oh yeah, they were these hardcore atheists who were maybe doing apologetics, you know, atheological apologetics against Christians online at some point, or they're the kind of people where you know they're agnostics and they, yeah, I'm not really convinced. But at some point, because they are um, being led by God's providence and uh, having conversations with you know all those all those various things that God is using. Uh, yeah, those are the, the non-resistant unbelievers. But, the, you know, again, like as a Calvinist, right, you're going to have an explanation of the non-resistance that doesn't go back to something like uh, a free will theodicy and God wringing his hands as a gray haired old man and all, and all that kind of stuff. Cool. All right, we'll keep going. Uh, we got we got a couple people saying saying hey in the in the comments. Eli from uh, Revealed Apologetics. What's up? What's up, brother? Uh, Peter, one way. Thanks for thanks for joining. All right, let's keep on trucking. The question then: Is there such a thing as non-resistant non-believer, a non-resistant <clears throat> believer? To which all I can really say is nice to meet you. The last time I debated Jonathan a number of years ago, when I was just by the way, really fast. Um, you'll you'll notice now he hasn't actually given us independent reason to actually to accept any of the premises of the argument. He's now just said, okay, I made this argument. So now given that there are these non-resistant non-believers and, and we're, again, we're just going to have to push back, you know, from, from a dialectic in the debate and say, well, we still, we still don't grant that point. You haven't given us independent reason uh, to think that. And we have these biblical defeaters to actually deny it. So you, you, you need to do the spade work to, to demonstrate that. Few months out being a teenager, I said that even if I thought, even if I found Christianity to be true, I still wouldn't want to worship the God uh, that it promotes. I now, since then, have realized how irrational and self-defeating this assertion is, and stand before you today as an example of a non-resistant non-believer. I think it would be great if God existed. I really do. I would, I would absolutely love to escape death. I would relish being a recipient of unconditional love. Less selfishly, I would love to be able to worship that which deserves to be worshipped. I just don't think it's true. But try as I might, look where I can, I find no response, no hint, nothing. I don't choose to disbelieve in God any more than I choose to disbelieve in aliens, despite how much I might want them to. So when faced with a psalm like Psalm 139, I'm overwhelmed with a sense not of duty and consolation, but envy and disappointment. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go, I should ask in response, to find it? Of course, you can't know my heart. You can't know if I'm truly as non-resistant as I claim, but I hope that my actions here might betray me. Uh, as, as a... 
I wonder also, I, I mean, at this point, sorry, I, I'm gonna unpause this because I feel, I, I always feel bad when I pause someone at like a terrible moment of, of face. Um, so I, I wonder if this is where like a like a Pascalian type of, you know, a Pascal's wager type of thing would come in because I think a lot of people confuse Pascal's wager as if it's an argument for the existence of God, when really Pascal's wager is, is, a, is a volitional appeal, right? It, it's saying, look, whether or not you believe the way you seek God and seek God while he may be found is you, you, it, it's, it's not an act of the intellect. It's an act of the will. You just say, look, uh, you, you just say to God, even though I, I don't, I don't have the, 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 you know, the, the, the belief or the conviction that you exist, I'm going to submit to you anyways, just out of, uh, out of, out of faith, um, out, out of hope, out of trust. And we're gonna go. We're gonna go from there. I, I'm. I'm gonna turn away from you know introspection on myself and putting myself as the standard, and I'm gonna submit to you. Um, and and I think a lot of you know a lot of atheists kick back in that and be like, oh well, you're just asking us to you know have blind blind belief in something. And it's like, well, well, again, no, because it's not an appeal to the intellect. It, it it's it's an appeal to the will, um, and to and to submitting yourself and to and to putting yourself underneath the authority. Um, and 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 the rule of God, and that's how you seek and find God. It's not by it's not by saying God, you come to me and you come under my microscope. It's I'm going to, despite the fact that I don't think that I have evidence to believe, I'm still going to submit and and and, and trust and obey. By the way, Christians do that all the time. We talk about having dark nights of the soul, where you know we we have periods of unbelief and doubt and 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 all that and all that kind of stuff, and we say, look the the way out of the darkness is to is to simply is to simply submit uh, and submit submit and trust uh, and and live um, uh, in in accordance with God, um, and and so it's you know it, it, it's it's not a it's not a fideistic thing, um, it, it's a it's a faith thing. Yeah, I, did, I, I already talked too much, but I was going to say earlier that um, to uh, I'm sure. Christians can relate to what unbelievers are formally saying, at least, because I mean, how many of us have, uh, you know, in a moment of weakness, come to realize after the fact, wow, you know, I wasn't really, uh, I, I was taken for granted how effective the word is at giving assurance, or wow, I was taking for granted what God was doing in my life and was was blind to it at the time. You know, Christians have that experience, so surely um there's some degree of like uh, uh inability to see that's relatable even if it's still um an epistemological problem for unbelief yeah well it's an, an altar boy i would serve the altar of mother church every sunday dressed in a white robe um in the time since then i have to put it mildly in looking for God. I went to Catholic schools, I studied philosophy and theology at A-levels, I made a career out of engaging with religious arguments. I've explored arguments from contingency, from fine-tuning, from motion, from mathematics, from indeed from uh, irreducible complexity and the alleged resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It may surprise my followers online to learn uh, that at university I visited numerous churches on the invitation of various friends. I spent hours talking with religious friends until the sun rose again, if you like. I spent, I attended Bible groups regularly too, which might surprise people. Uh, as well, and in fact, I, I still do attend such groups. Just recently, I agreed to embark on a series of study of the wisdom literature, specifically reading it again, in the hopes that this time, I might finally feel a divine presence seeping from between the lines. 
I moved into a house for a year with two devoutly Christian housemates with the express intention of seeing if the obvious truth of Christianity and theism that people like to talk about can be found in the minutia of daily life. I have looked, in other words, in a great deal of places. I read Athanasius and Anselm. I read Augustine and Aquinas. I, I looked in Julian of Norwich and Catherine of Siena. I looked at the sociological origin of religious belief in Durkheim and Marx and Freud and Young. I looked at religious experience in William James and Rudolf Otto. I've looked in the modern works of people like F. Faser and Bill Craig and Michael Murray and Richard Swinburne and Alvin Plantinger. I've looked in poetry. I've looked in the Psalms. I've looked in Job. I've looked in Ecclesiastes. I've looked in Dostoevsky. I read C.S. Lewis. I listened to worship music. I prayed. I studied the gospel. I even got an actual degree in theology from a university and nothing. Nothing, not once, not nearly, not ever, not even briefly, have I experienced anything that speaks to the existence of a God in the universe. I think it's asking a lot of any atheist to seriously engage with a religion that he does not believe is true in any circumstances. But I feel like I have gone above and beyond what can be reasonably expected of any atheist who wishes to entertain the God hypothesis, and for my efforts I have been awarded radio silence. I guess I guess my, my answer to this is, uh, and we've kind of already said it, M most of that is, I've I've done I've done all these experiments, right? I I've I've put God to this. Like like if I were to, if I were to ask what's what's the scriptural engagement? How do you, how do you how do you how do you come to know God? How do you taste and know that God is good? You know what what shall I do to be saved? Where 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 is the I've repented of my sin and turned in faith and trusted Jesus Christ? He he like he hasn't done the 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 one thing. Uh, that the scripture has said, that's how you'll know God. Yeah, yeah that's right. Anselm, so. Say that again? Uh, oh, I just said, uh, but he read Anselm, so. And, and, and Young. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't even catch that, but that's really, really good. It, uh, there's no gospel. There's no mention of the gospel there, which is uh, a striking absence. Yeah, I mean, and and he's gonna say, oh, you know, I've gone to Bible studies, I I I I prayed, um, you know, I kind of, but he's he's coming at this as a, almost as a, you know, I, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to say where his heart's at. I'm saying that the activities that he's done are as a clinician, right? It's it, it's it's these clinical things I'm gonna do um, to try to put God under a microscope um, and to try to get this evidence to cause me to believe, and so therefore then. Uh, once, once God kind of, you know, deigns to, to, to my, to my threshold of evidence, then I, I'll, I'll consider, you know, uh, you know, faith and, and repentance and trusting him. And it's, it's, uh, again, God just says, well, you know, you, you know, I, I've revealed everything in creation and they have Moses and the prophets and, and, and that's you, you, you repent and have faith and walk with God and that's it. Yeah, no. You, uh, as he's been, as he's saying this, I didn't, I didn't catch the absence of the gospel, which I think is key. But um, he, he, he's almost talking like that kind of person who has been very influenced by Disney. You hear people talk about how I, oh, I, I thought that I fell in love with this person, but I'm not really sure. I mean, could it, could it just be the chemistry? I just don't know if we really found that feeling or whatever. Right? They're talking about love as if it's this kind of like mystical um emotive experience that you're chasing after as opposed to like this um uh relationship that is installed through commitment between two parties like it, it the the very uh groundwork of like what it means to experience god what it means to know god is just backwards it's it's very post-enlightenment um 
rationalistic kind of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it, it, it is, it is this very, uh, you know, existential, but, but, and, and that's why I said at the very beginning, I mean, this, this, this may appeal to a certain theological tradition, kind of that, you know, late modern American evangelical mega church type of type of thing where it's, well, 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 everything is about experience. Everything is about, you know, if you're, uh, you know, this is why we have rock bands. This is, this is, this is why it, you know, in Protestant traditions, the pulpit, which used to be front and center in the middle of the church, because we were coming, uh, to receive, uh, and, and feast on the word of God as God, as God ministers to us, that's moved and been replaced by the drum set because the drum set is now the thing why people go to church. It's the, it's the, it's the, it, it, it's not to be fed and nourished on word and sacrament. It's to it's to go and, and be and to be enlivened in this experience that you can have. Uh, and people leave church and they say, "Oh, how was it? Oh, I you know it it was great. I you know I, the music was great." And I and it's all about this kind of existential feeling that you get from it. And I and, and I get the sense from his that you know I I don't think he would put it that crassly. I don't I don't think Alex would would would. I think he would say, no, I'm out for I'm out for the truth of the thing, not necessarily the experience of the thing. But you can you can see that that kind of I'll know that it's true when I have this experience of the presence of God. Like that's almost like the sumum bonum um, when really, you know, the 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 the, the scripture shows well even that that type of experience is is a benefit. But that's not actually the end in itself. Christ is the end in itself. We'll keep going. The inescapable God of the NRC, in other words, is for me the invisible God or the inapproachable God, the deaf, distant God. The best account that I can give of this experience of complete and utter silence from deaf heaven is that all that truly exists to me is impersonal space and air and rocks. I know, I know it sucks. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a shame. There's no need to cry about it. And nothing more. My question to Jonathan then is simple. How can theism account for this lived experience? How can it account, in other words, for non-resistant non-belief? And if atheism, and doesn't atheism, offer a better explanation at the very least? Am I a non-resistant non-believer? If so, what offers a best account or a better account of such a condition? A universe in which there is a loving God who does want to be my friend, but is for some reason refusing or hiding or toying with me, or a universe without one? Uh, I think here, <clears throat> just from just from a debate tactic, right? So so now kind of going away from, um, from that, the, the, what, what's the validity of the argument? I was struck by it's a weird argument, actually, if you think about the form of it. Um, because he he's saying he, on the one hand he's saying look naturalism better accounts for the hiddenness of God well if if God is present and hidden the naturalism can't account that just default falsifies naturalism because even if God is hidden there's still God right so so he he almost has to it, it's this weird like rigmarole of, of of assuming a faceless cosmos saying well naturalism you know best accounts for that um which which ironically it, it just entails that he's agreeing that naturalism entails nihilism uh but it's this it, it it's this weird structural move then to argue that it best accounts for the hiddenness of god how how would christianity you know solve that i think we've given lots of explanations but the validity of that move just doesn't seem to follow for me does that make sense yeah, again, I didn't see that, but that's actually really, that's key. Uh, so, I mean, you, you tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that sounds, Tyler, like uh, an equivocation, right? Because what he's saying is that, or, or, or the way, like, if you think about it in terms of um, 
switching out the meaning of a word. Uh, when he says hiddenness of the theistic framework, what he's saying, like you just said, God is there, but he's not forthcoming. You know, it's the uh, knowledge of him is not easily accessible. But uh, then he's turning around and switching that meaning for God is not there. And that's why one would find so much uh, uh, non-resistant non-belief in him. Right? right. Those are just two different. Uh, it's not really hiddenness at all. Right. That's not really worthy the same term. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's equivocation, maybe equivocation. It's I, I would think of it. It's more it's moving the goalposts. It's saying it's saying I I. I I can establish this one thing, although I still don't think he's established that there's non-resistant non-believers, but I can establish this one thing. But then when I'm going to press Jonathan, I'm going to change the goalpost. He needs to explain this other thing. Well, of course he established it. He said he read all his books. Were you not listening? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually struck. Now that you mentioned the books here, I'm, I'm actually struck because, uh, you know, he read C.S. Lewis. I, I wonder if he's read, if he's read uh, Till We Have Faces. Um, because that, that's, that's actually C.S. Lewis's book where he, where he directly addresses, um, divine hiddenness, right? He, I mean, he, he directly says, well, you know, why, why are holy places, dark places? Why, why, why does God appear to be, uh, you know, hidden? Um, because we can't see God face to face until we have faces. Um, it's this, you know, this, this, this whole, this whole book, but like, um, you know, this, this is something that, that Lewis has, has directly, uh, addressed, I think in, in a very wonderful way, actually. You read the one with the witch. I'll just say too, like, because uh, I, I think we, it, Tyler, you already made a comment, but I actually really like this guy. I don't really know Alex that well, but mm -hmm. he seems like a charming, nice guy. I'd love to have a conversation with him type of guy. Yeah. I, I hope it doesn't seem like we're just bagging on him. No, Alex, Alex is a great, I, and from, I, I, I really enjoy uh, Alex. I think he's a nice guy. I think he's charitable. I think he, I, I, the, 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 the man is brilliant. He's, He's he's very very smart, um, so uh, yeah, I, I don't think anything we should say here should be should be taken as like we're we're knocking him or anything like that. We I I think we just simply disagree with uh with with his you know his his inferential structure within his argument with his with his premises. I don't think he's proven his case, um, and and I would and I would you know if it, I would challenge and encourage him to you know seek God in in the ways that God has prescribed. Um, not in the ways, not, not, not tell God, you know, not to prescribe to God, how God has to seek him. Um, that just gets it entirely backwards. Or is there no such thing as a non-resistant non-believer, which is the only remaining option? Do we all secretly resist in some way or other? After desperately, in other words, trying to convince myself of God's existence for years and being left painfully unconvinced, will you just submit as if to add insult to this spiritual injury that this is uh, in some way my fault? And so, so this is why I said the, 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 you know, this argument's also going to play on emotions a little bit because he's going to he's going to say no one wants to be the bad guy and 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 add insult to injury and say well I'm just I'm just wrong I just I just don't know my internal state right and and I and I think we're just going to bite the bullet and say yes you're you're where no no one is saying you're being malicious no one is saying you're intentionally uh, you know self consciously resisting you know and and, and shaking your fist to the heavens but but that's that's not the type of the resistance that the scriptures even talks about. You know all the time anyway so it, it does talk about that you can sin with a high hand um it does it does talk about those things you know you can you can overtly sit you know sin and resist um but it, but it talks about suppression and subversion and and uh, uh and, and and very religious ways uh to to resist um and so we would just say you're, you're still resistant in, in in that regard yes we'll, we'll bite that bullet 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think uh, I think I would just say I, w- I would never accuse uh, a person. I mean, surely both you you catch um, Christians doing this too, right? Lying um, to try to persuade someone. I don't think he's lying. I don't think he's being um, dishonest. I think he's just honestly uh, self-deceived. You know, there's a there's a level there where uh, sin has just confused him. It's made him a mystery to himself. Yeah. This is, wasn't, wasn't uh, Bonson's uh, doctoral thesis on, on self-delusion? Self-deception. Yeah. 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 At my, my, uh, my senior thesis at Moody was on the noetic effects of sin uh, and, and how actually, you know, one, one, the, the, the fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental issues with sin um, just is that it breaks our 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 cognitive ability to to uh, to think about God in our thinking, um, and so it fundamentally breaks even even the way we think about things. Um, and so even even an, you can you can be entirely you know this is this is one of the, the the areas where people I think don't understand Van Til is that there 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 is an, there is an entirely true way that we can say atheists can be rational. But they're irrational in their rationality, right? Because they don't do it within within the proper within the proper framework. Um, they don't do it in a, in a grounded and, and epistemically consistent and, and self aware way. Um, and so there's a there there yeah. is there is a way that you can be irrationally rational. Um, and people people you know that's not that's not a contradiction because we mean it in different senses. We mean it at different levels. Um, and and that that I think where we would come here is that you you know he's he's being non resistantly resistant, um, so to speak, but in, in those kind of different levels. Yeah, the the name of the philosopher is escaping me. But in that paper, I really liked. I, re- I remember reading um, your paper on the noetic effects, and, and uh, you bring up the IU um, category. Martin Buber. Yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, this, that's really good um, for understanding how um, you can have something like an unintentional or a um, um, non-malicious case of deception. You know, you think of the of the child who, rather than like you just said, right, rather than shaking his fist at or giving his dad the middle finger, aha, uh-huh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go take your car and drive it wherever I want to, even though you've told me not to. You just think of the son who, instead of going to his dad and asking him, just assumes that he has the right to go use his car however he wants. Right? It's a matter of neglect. It just doesn't even occur to him to think of himself as a son under his father's authority yeah and and you know and and that's actually people people miss the point of the prodigal son the parable of the prodigal son the fact that we even call it the parable of the prodigal son shows that we miss actually the main point of the parable um the 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 main point of the parable is actually the love of the father for his two prodigal sons his you know it's just the difference between one of them is overtly sinful and you know sins with a high hand the dutiful son is actually the Pharisees. The dutiful son is this is actually the more problematic, the more evil son, because it's under the surface, it's hidden. He he's the one that stays home, but he ha- he shows he has no love for the father. He he hates the father j- and is waiting for him to die just as much as the younger son was. Um, and 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 it, and it's that it's that it, it's that he he is a. Uh, you know, an undutiful, dutiful son. He he is an unfaithful, faithful son, um, because it, it's it's dealing at those at those different levels. Um, 
So yeah, it, it's it's very much the same thing with this with this non-resistant. He he's entirely resistant. He he you know, he 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 has not repented and submitted uh, to to uh, the will of God. He has not received and accepted the gospel, um, even though he's non-resistant in these kind of a academic, uh, more overt ways. Right, right. If it is, then what could I have done differently? What should I be doing differently? What could I possibly have done differently given the course of my life? Repent and believe. That's what you can do. Now, assume for a moment, ladies and gentlemen, the alternative hypothesis of naturalism, of atheism, and ask you that it provides a good account of non-resistant non-belief. And I think the answer is obvious. But it does get worse yet. You'll remember that my second fact that I said that I would bring up is the geographical predictability of religious belief. Not only does the need to- Can you stop right there? Yep. Okay, I I'm sorry for, I know we've spent like uh, like 40 minutes on just this argument, but one last thing real quick. Um, because it sounds like he's moving. Is is he moving on from this? Yeah, he's he's going to move on. I think we're going to skip this one. We can make a couple comments. It's just the normal re religious belief is geographically tied, and it's based on the faith of your parents. We, we can make a couple quick comments. I think this one's been done to death. Okay. Uh, well, I I just wanted, to, for my part, like one last thought that I had about his first argument is just that. Um, uh, oh, uh, the, uh, I was thinking and rhetorically, if I were, uh, you know, if I were doing the Tyler comeback in the debate, I'm thinking like, well, the problem with saying that um, uh, atheism can better explain this non-resistant non-belief is that atheism doesn't really explain anything. <laughs> On that uh, hypothesis, like there are no such things as beliefs, much less beliefs in, you know, rational states uh, like uh, you know, cognitively representing the universe as being godless or something, right? Like, atheism is just not a good worldview. Uh, it's it's it is the sitting duck for objections in terms of hypotheses about what the world is like. So I just thought that was kind of um, uh, it was a little bit amusing because he's this. You can see, surely we can all say, okay, um, like you were saying earlier, Tyler, right? Like. From a certain perspective, you can see how Christians would be stumped by this. You can see how, oh, okay, this is this this has some persuasive value. I don't think it's a good argument, but you can see how people would be convinced by it, right? But turn the the tables a little bit. Go now, step into the atheist universe. Why would there be the animals that can have beliefs in the first place? Like, and this isn't, you know, that's. I just thought that was amusing. Yeah, I I think we could do the the full precept thing and say I, I'm. In order for atheism to be able to explain this, atheism would have to ground rationality. Atheism can't ground rationality, therefore atheism can't explain anything. Um, you, you know, we could we could go all the way back to you know starting with a transcendental critique of uh, of even his attempt to make these arguments. Um, so I, I I think I think some people think that that's that's all presuppositional is that it's a one trick pony. But I think you know hopefully they're they're seeing from this that that we we can actually say okay well we can do a transcendental critique, but at the same time we can keep that in mind and still engage and show that the arguments are invalid because you're still starting with the wrong presuppositions in other areas as well. It's not, you know, there, there, there are other ways to do these types of internal critiques of views um, uh, rather than, than, than merely kind of a bald, simple uh, transcendental critique, although we can do that. <laughs> we just put a pin in that for now, um, but we, you know, we could do that as well. Um, all right, so <clears throat> the the next part is the the geographical uh, dispersion of belief. It, you know, in, in Christian nations, Christian belief is higher. Theistic nations, theistic belief is higher. Why why do we see that? Um, I don't know. I 
I, I think that, you know, the, the general response to these things that this is a genetic fallacy um, it, it are, are viable. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, we we have every biblical reason to understand why that's the case. Uh, you know, faith begets faith and sin begets sin. And and and, and God promises that the, the promises are for us and for our children. And so, of course, it's the case that when we raise our children to believe in uh, in God, we, we have higher levels of belief in God. I, I just I, I've just never found this objection. I don't I don't understand why um, this is a, a, a meaningful objection. Um, I'm reminded uh, maybe you remember Tyler. I don't remember uh, his name. I'm so terrible with names, but um, there was maybe I want to say a year, possibly a year and a half ago. There was an intelligent. I think it was an atheist historian. I mean, he may have even written a book on this about how uh, Christianity has changed the world. And uh, in an interview was expressing beliefs about how, you know, removing Christian religion from our um, Western first world ethos would basically turn the world upside down. We, we, we would go back into barbarism and, we, you know, the society would just fall apart. And I think um, that's, uh, he's not alone in that. You know, there are many, um, uh, philosophers of religion who think, even though I, I'm sure we disagree with this generalistic categorization of religion, but nevertheless, who think of religious worldviews as generally being beneficial. So it's funny to me that people make this kind of argument because, you know, even for, for I don't, like you said, it's a genetic fallacy, right? But even if you put that aside for just a moment and step into um, the less academic person walking down the street where they're asking themselves, you know, shouldn't these things have a concrete effect on life? Yeah, but if you kind of look at the history of ideas and see which which ones are doing what and where they've had an effect, you're going to see that philosophies that have shared more in common with Christianity have had better societies going along with them. And the opposite is the case for those societies which have believed things that are fundamentally opposed to Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Um, I want to say Steinrucken, but I think that's the, I think that's the, the scientist. Um, but there, there's, there's an article called um, uh, atheism owes, atheism owes a great debt to Christianity or atheism's great debt to Christianity or something like that. And, and it basically, it basically argues that same point where, you know, it, Atheism wouldn't even get off the ground if it wasn't for for Christianity making the culture such that atheism even uh, you know became a thing. Um, uh, and, and, you know he makes that argument. I think a lot of people um, misunderstand Nietzsche, um, and they think that you know Nietzsche was excited about the death of God when really Nietzsche was horrified about the death of God um, because he, he you know he he understood that the death of God meant the death of Western civilization. Um, and, and kind of the, the the progress and the ethical systems that that we have come to to know and love, so to speak. Um, so you know, it, it, yeah. Secularism is kind of like communism. Anywhere <laughs> it goes, it sucks. That's really my take. It's a hot take. Oh. From yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was. Gonna, I mean, there's 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 a sense where you know, I I, I can't think of it a, a nation that has been you know either expressly atheistic or primarily atheistic where I would really uh, want, want to live. So, but yeah, and, and contrarily, right? Like I'm sure we would rather live, uh, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're getting stuck in a commune, right? Rather get stuck in a commune with Roman Catholics 
you know, even though I think Roman Catholicism is fundamentally a, a pagan uh, religion, it's not Christianity, right? But yet, at least we have some things in common. It's more similar to Christianity than some other things in the world. And I think that's telling, right? It, it's, it's not of little consequence if the closer you get to Christianity, the, the better your society is getting. That's, that to me suggests something about the true, the veracity of the worldview. Uh, all right, so I'm going to try to find the place where he goes to gratuitous evil. If there is, in fact, one true God who loves all equally. Again, I think atheism provides a much stronger right, suffering. It does seem to... Oh, here we go. Gratuitous here means something like unjustified or unwarranted. Or atheism. Religion varying by region is exactly what we would expect if it is a man-made cultural phenomenon, and nothing like what we should expect if there is, in fact, one true God who loves all equally. Again, I think atheism provides a much stronger account of this fact of our world. Finally, then... The third fact of our universe, which is gratuitous suffering. Gratuitous here means something like unjustified, or unwarranted, or meaningless. <clears throat> I do this because it's easy to see how some instances of suffering may be uh, beneficial in certain circumstances, or necessary to bring about some desirable state of affairs, some desirable end. But the existence of meaningless, or unnecessary suffering, does seem to be incompatible with the existence of a God who loves us and has the power to prevent it from happening. We're sometimes told that God has morally sufficient reason to allow suffering to exist. Indeed, if God is good, then he must have such sufficient reason. Perhaps suffering is necessitated by human free will. Perhaps suffering helps to develop a person's moral character, or maybe it's necessary to achieve some other end that God wishes to bring about. But intuitively, there appear to be instances of suffering that cannot serve any such end. And if even one example of these turns out to be an actual case of unnecessary or meaningless suffering, this would be enough to cause a problem. I want to propose something that might sound a little strange at first, which is that the biggest problem for theism here is not famously the, the great intense sufferings of the world, like holocausts or earthquakes, but rather menial, uh, menial less significant suffering, like being caught out in the rain or serving your toe or dripping over a curb on the street. Why? It seems a tad absurd, I'll, I'll grant you that, but consider this, when we experience a great suffering, like the death of a loved one or a devastating earthquake or indeed a holocaust, it's easy to imagine that this might somehow be part of a grand plan. The death of our suffering uh, may make us into better people. The people who die may be experiencing a much happier state of affairs in the afterlife now. Perhaps by allowing the Jewish holocaust to take place, God uh, makes it such that we are far less likely to allow even worse uh, projects of genocide to occur in the future. But what could possibly be served? What possible end could be served? What possible meaning could there be in subbing your toe or tripping over the curb or having a pigeon use your new suit as a restroom? Such instances are not significant. They're usually forgotten within a day or two and therefore do not and cannot develop the soul. Nor do they seem plausibly part of some grand design or plan. They seem, that is to say, meaningless and unnecessary. More meaningless, uh, more meaninglessness than instances of, let's say, great uh, or intense suffering, much more meaningless than these. A truly meaningless, unnecessary suffering is certainly more expected in a world without benevolent supervision than in a theistic paradigm. A successful theology, in other words, then, needs to provide not only an account of the great and intense sufferings of the world, but also the menial sufferings which pervade the human experience. Now, I'm actually quite surprised uh, that I made it this far without mentioning. All right. What do you all think? Uh, it's so maybe I maybe I missed something, and we're going we're going a little fast for my ears, but uh, I didn't hear anything like a, a demonstration or, or an offering of uh, an evidential scenario that showed that any of these cases are unjustifiable yeah I <clears throat> I think I think you're 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 right on so my 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 objection to this is is uh, I mean I, I have a couple one of them is I, I mean I can I can think of all kinds of theological and biblical reasons why I might stub my toe or might have a bird you know, poop on, on me. Um, because it, it specifically reminds me that I'm not made for this world, right? It specifically, you know, it, 
it, it calls to mind. It, it, it is it is an ever present. Even the mundane things in life uh, are 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 an ever present reminder um, that 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 we are we are not meant for this world alone. Um, which you know there you, you you could have that. The, but the, the fundamental problem I have with this is that it it begs the question, right? It says, well, <clears throat> if God exists, there wouldn't be these gratuitous evils. Right there, there wouldn't be these purposeless evils. Well, how do you know that it's purposeless? Well, because I I have this intentionality, I I have this intuition, I should say, um, that that God couldn't have a reason for them. So therefore, God couldn't have a reason for them. And it's like, well, well, if God exists, and 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 all things work together for the good of those who love Him or call according to His purpose, if God if God determines and decrees all things for His good present purpose, they're just isn't anything as a, as a gratuitous purposeless evil, right? So the only way you can get that it's a purposeless evil is to already assume that it's purposeless, which is just to assume that God doesn't exist in the first place to argue that God doesn't exist. So it just, it, it's just, for, for me, it's just formally invalid. Yeah. It, it's, it kind of subtly begs the question, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I, I'll add another example to what you just said, because I think that was good uh, that the stubbing your toe uh, makes you think on like the ex eschatological fact, like your your destiny is your your home is is uh, bound far from here. Another thing like in this in the same train of thought. Right. Another thing um, that you learn through suffering. Boy, boy, can I uh, say this uh, personally, like uh, it really um uh especially because especially in light of calvinism it really teaches you to trust god's plan uh i can't even imagine uh, some of the some of the times that uh, i have faced uh dark periods in my life i can't even imagine what how abysmal it would be to face um those horrors and then think yeah but god didn't plan this God's not in control of this. This is not something that God is choosing to occur for um, his glory. Like that is that is the comfort behind it. That's what gets me through is that, okay, there is a author of this story. He's working things for the good of those who believe. Like that is, uh, that hope is what, what can motivate you to, to stick with it through uh, what would otherwise seem like gratuitous evil. Hansen, anything? I don't know if you had to step away or if you're still here. Uh, he might have had to step away. He's he's at he's at work. Uh, all right. So, any other thoughts on uh, Alex O'Connor's opening statement before we go to we 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 go from heathens to Jesuits? Uh, I don't know, I don't actually know what Trent Horn you know if he if he lands that way, but yeah, we're we're going to go to an engagement with a with a Roman Catholic now. Uh, any other thoughts with uh, with Alex before we wrap up? Okay, I don't I don't mean to slander Trent Horn, but uh, I would more prefer to have a conversation with Alex. No, I'm just kidding. Alex, Alex seems like a nice guy. It'd be cool to get him on sometime. Yeah, yeah. Alex, nice guy. Trent Horn is also an extremely nice guy. Uh, you know, um, uh, very, 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 very cordial. Uh, I know, I know, it has a lot of really good discussions with with Christian. So, I'm impressed by the arguments. Um, and I, I prefer these kind of worldview debates anyways, more more of these foundational. I, I think 
the really it it only interests me if he plan he would you know Connor would be interested in like maybe uh, some kind of transcendental critique of Christianity and, and some validation of his own view. But I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. It'd be it'd be it'd be good. Maybe we can invite him on somehow. I don't know. We'll see. All right, let's go to Trent Horn. So this is one question Protestants can't answer. Uh, I don't know if we'll get through. Uh, it's 22 minutes. Uh, I don't know if we'll get through a, a big chunk of it, but I think we can we can address the the main concern uh, in the in the first. Basically, he gives his his concern in the first section, and then just gives like a bunch of examples of what he thinks this is. So we don't. I don't think we have to go through all these individual examples to respond to the main. Uh, to the main question, so. Yep. Hey everyone, welcome to the Council of Trend podcast. I'm your host, Catholic Answers apologist and speaker, Trent Horn. And today I wanna to talk about one question that Protestants can't answer. This is a follow-up from my conversation with Jeff and Steve Christie I had earlier in the week about how Protestants can sometimes argue like atheists. And at one point, Steve and I talked about Christian essentials. like. Which, by the way, I, I listened to that discussion and how we argue about like atheists. It's a terrible argument. It, it it's it, it really really is not a good argument. I, we we may want to engage with that another time, but it is, it's not. A good... On top of it, I'm going to have a. You mentioned Steve Christie. I'm going to be talking to Steve Christie about the Marian dogmas uh, soon. So, well, tell, tell him not tell him not to object to them like an atheist. Uh, yeah. It, it, uh, effectively, his argument that we argue like atheists is that um, we 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 reject Roman Catholicism um, like athe like atheists do. It 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 was okay. not it was not a not a good not a good look. All right, I, I'm sorry to drag us a little further down this rabbit hole, but you got to admit it's a little bit ironic. <laughs> See, I had no idea what the argument was under that video heading, but I thought it was ironic right away because I thought, wait a second, aren't Thomistic Catholics, the ones who believe that we should go to autonomous reason and autonomous reason can basically figure out how governments work and how we should live our lives and do all that stuff. And then we just add the Bible and sacred doctrine, you know, on top of that a little bit later. And you know, we need tradition. Like <laughs> that's the uh, epistemology of the atheists. All you do is you, it's like a God. It's like a Christianity is a DLC to the video game. You're already running like <laughs> All right, let's let's see this. Uh, this is the question that Protestants can't answer. What are the essential doctrines of Christianity? Because he said that, for example, belief in a young earth, the earth is less than 6,000 years old, is not an essential belief to Christianity. But other beliefs are essential. If you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. But here's the problem for Protestantism. What tells us, what authority tells us what is required to be a Christian, what is not required, and what beliefs would disqualify you from being a Christian. Like the Bible doesn't lay out a list saying, here is what you need to believe to be a Christian. It doesn't have any sort of list like that. So you have Protestants disagreeing about these issues. Now, many Protestants will say, well, look, yes, there is disagreement in Protestantism, but it's over secondary issues like a young earth versus an old earth. Uh, whether certain charismatic gifts have continued since the first century or not, whether a church should be run 
led congregationally or with presbyters or an Episcopalian Episcopate model, certain models of church governance, but we agree on the main things because this goes back to the foundational pillars of Protestantism, uh, sola scriptura, not by scripture alone, and sola fide, justification by faith alone. And so sola scriptura says scripture is the highest or the only infallible authority. There's different definitions, many of which I think are somewhat inadequate. Uh, but the idea of sola scriptura is there's a secondary belief that goes right along with it. If scripture is the highest or ultimate authority for Christians or the only infallible authority, Protestantism has long concluded, has long affirmed, I should say, that there is no uh, authority that has the unique responsibility to interpret scripture. So Dave Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation at the Second Vatican Council, talks about how the interpretation of sacred scripture is entrusted to the teaching office of the magisterium, the teaching office of Christ's church. Protestants would say, no, uh, Christians are free to interpret the Bible. The Bible is their authority. And what follows from that is that if the Bible is their authority, then God has made the world and providentially arranged it so that any Christian reading the Bible will know what they need to be saved. They may not know everything in the Bible, but they'll figure it out. And so Protestants would say they do have agreement. They would say that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Okay. Really fast. <clears throat> his objection is his question that we can answer. Right? What, what are the what are the the, the essentials uh, uh, to be a Christian? What are the essentials to be saved? His objection is just fundamentally uh, an equivocation between ontology and epistemology. Right? It, it's 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 this difference between he 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 goes back and forth in this throughout this entire thing of what what is true for you to be saved and how do you know or what do you have to know in order to be saved right Th those two things are very different questions and he keeps going back and forth between them and he seems to think that protestants think that we have to have certainty in the epistemic condition in order to be saved um and that's just not the case um and 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 it, it just plagues this entire video where he just he just keeps going back and forth between those two things um and, and whereas protestants we're going to say well you're you know we're our, our beliefs are, are are true in so far as they align with what the scriptures teach and i don't i i don't have to have this cartesian certainty this infallible knowledge of of what scriptures teach i i you know I, I just don't have to have this 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 infallible certain knowledge of these things to be saved. Jimmy, I see you. Keep okay, my here. my point is. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, my my point is not nearly. I mean that that to me summarily answers Trent Horn very well. I'm not even sure. I don't think I can add much more to that. But uh, I was going to say too. This is maybe a little nitpicky, but. Protestantism isn't really a thing, right? I mean, part of the, uh, yeah, right. I mean, so part of part of the whole um, framing mistake there is to think of Protestantism as like the alternate category to Roman Catholicism, and that's just kind of funny because um, it is Roman Catholic ecclesiology to think that there has to be like this all-encompassing 
one sect that rules them all, human tradition authority figure. Like, if you think that's how the church works, then you might think that Protestantism has to have like the alternative one institutional sect thing, you know, whatever, right? Like, but that's that's the whole point is that we don't have we we don't share that ecclesiology because we don't believe. Uh, or excuse me, because we do believe sola scriptura and other sorts of things, right? So I just think that framing, again, maybe it's a little nitpicky, but I think that framing is... No, is uh, yeah, no, it's true. It's it's like if someone said cats are the absolute best pets and everything that's not a cat claims that it's the best pet. Like... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Not, that's, that's not, yeah. It, you know, cat and not cat well, formally, you know, uh, uh, opposites, like not cat isn't a thing that's formally opposite of cat. Um, so it, yeah, it's, uh, and, 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 you know, I draw analogy to, to, um, to dispensationalism a lot because there's, I think there's an example of this that, that is really, really clear in the dispensational reform debates where, where dispensationalists accuse um, covenant theology or, or other people are being replacement theologians, right? And I'll say why this is meaningful in a second, because they, they're going to say, oh, well, well, everyone else thinks that the church replaces Israel, right? Not only is that not, you know, that, that, that supersessionism is, is not the, the most people who are not dispensationalists aren't supersessionists. We, we actually think that the church just is Israel. Right. But because dispensationalism within it has has this ontological distinction between the church and Israel, those are those are just ontologically discontinuous things. They look at any other view. And say, OK, well, if you're saying that at this time was Israel and this time was the church, you must be saying that the church supersedes and takes over. You, you, you have to be saying the replacement because in our system, those are two different things, right? So, so it's trying to evaluate this, the, these other views by assuming the structure within your own view, right? And that's, that's really what, what Trent Horn is doing here. To, to your point, it's saying, look, in, in Catholicism, we require this absolute infallible magisterium. So when we look at these other views, we're going to filter everything they say through this idea that you that 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 as if we all agree that you have to have this infallible magisterial, this infallible teaching office. You all are just trying to do it decentralized and inconsistently, all that kind of stuff, whereas we do it, you know, centralized and unified. And we're just going to come along and say, well, we just we just deny that there's this need for for an infallible you know teaching magisterium. That's just not a thing. It's just not. It's just not a thing. We don't. We don't. We don't think that that's needed um, for 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 uh, for faith and practice. Um, and God has given us all these other means to have reasonable beliefs. Uh, you know, traditions. Are, I'm Presbyterian. Tradition is a great thing. I think creeds and councils they set up really really great boundary markers, and we can we can use right. So uh, it's just we just don't require that. Yeah. Um, what are you going to say more? Okay, so you know, it just comes to my mind. I, I think even if you were to give him the strongest benefit here, I think he's already confused two different words between, you know, can't and haven't. Like at best, they haven't, and at worst, you know, they can't. 
But uh, basically, he's, he hasn't shown that they can't. Like, there's no inherent contradiction in the idea that, you know, maybe Protestants will all come together and agree on some universal list. Yeah, that's I mean, it's not plausible, but it's feasible. <laughs> or it's, it's possible, really. Yeah. Um, to to this other extent, I, I really, you know, I find this ironic because, you know, to turn the question back on the... the, the Trap, um, you know, can Catholics tell you what you need to believe? Can they really do that? And have they? You know, what's the point of having an authority if they haven't even done it? And from my experience with with Catholics of all shapes and sizes, um, they'll tell you different things depending on which ones you ask. A more trad Catholic will tell you that if you're a Protestant, you're going to go to hell, and then a Let's say a more modern Catholic will tell you the exact opposite. Um, and in some regards, you got to even consider like the fact that since people of other faiths can be saved, given Vatican II, beliefs aren't really necessarily as important now, so to speak, getting the right doctrine. So now it's kind of more like doing the right things. Can, can um, I, can I yeah, jump in yeah, there? No, oh, you're I not just allowed wanted, to talk. Yeah, well, no, but just the, the irony there that what you and uh, Tyler were saying like fit together here that uh, I can imagine a a Roman Catholic responding to what you just said, saying something like, well, you know, I mean, that's the whole point why we have the authority because, you know, uh, Roman Catholic individual church members can err, but that doesn't mean that um, the, the church tradition can or that the um, the the stool of the you know whatever you know whatever the thing is right um but the 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 great irony there is that the protestant can say the same thing right <laughs> uh when it's as if trent horn is like tyler was just saying is assuming the structure of his own epistemology onto his opponents as if you know protestants think of their own individual selves as just these ultimate authorities so whenever we disagree it's analogous to the church, his church authorities disagreeing with themselves. Well, that's not analogous because we don't think of ourselves as yeah. the ultimate authorities. The, the ultimate authority is the word of God and right. nobody, Catholic or Protestant, nobody thinks that that disagrees with itself, right? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I usually point out like, you know, if, if, if you think Hans Kuhn and 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 Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, believe the th same things as part of the teaching magisterium. I don't know what to tell you. Like they're they're about as far apart as we are from you know Bishop Shelby Spong. Um, and he, he he'll come back and say, well, you know, you know, uh, Kuhn doesn't represent the, the 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 magisterium. Okay, that's fine. But you you have you have ordained priests running around. They're they're they're, they're clearly part of the machinations uh, of of the magisterium, and there, and we would point to examples where I mean you you could talk about okay well you have this infallible magisterium, except when it's except when it's not, and and you know the pope is infallible only when he speaks extra which he's only done like twice, um, and very late, um, and and contradicts things that previously, you know, popes have said before the the you know the inception of papal infallibility and it's just you know we could talk about okay well 
it's the magisterium, but only on faith and practice. Okay, well, we can show these, we can show these examples where, you know, a church council or a pope taught something about faith. Okay, but, but that's more like, you know, that, that's, that, that's not, uh, you know, you have all these papal bulls that are about these moral obligations. Oh, well, that's not, you know, that's not morals in the broad, like it just, it becomes so ad hoc that it's, it's just, it's hard to see how that's, how that's any better uh, than, than individual Christians trying to make their best of it under the authority of the scriptures. Yeah, I was, I was even just thinking, like, say they want to say the standard is, like, what's dogmatic beliefs, right? And I'm just like, well, then, you know, a lot of you non-Sungenist Catholics are screwed because, you know, to him, you know, that whole geocentric controversy? Yeah, that's all dogma. A lot of you Catholics don't believe that anymore. So, so, uh, uh, you know, there's Catholics that take Vatican II to be a pastoral council, not really one of a uh, doctrine. It's it's a shell game. Yeah, I mean, you have you have Boniface. I mean, the big controversial passage, basically Boniface saying, if if you don't bow the knee to the the see of Peter, you can't be saved. Like, yeah, it's 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 not even even just that. It's that he ties it also in with like papal authority, the yeah. the the sacraments, his control of it all. Like, it's just yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah, and so how is that? How is that not an issue of? Of faith and practice or, or you know faith and morals him saying what's absolutely necessary to be saved you know but catholics are gonna you know they'll they'll, they'll, they'll you know they'll, they'll believe some of it and not other like it's just it's all over the place yes so uh i i think that's uh i, I mean he uh we can listen to this for another couple minutes you can see these little breaks he just he then just gives examples and he says look like they you know they disagree about you know the proper recipients and, and does baptism save um that's a really good example of he, he's gonna say well that you know that's important because if you don't baptize your children on some systems um you know they, they they won't be saved uh or you know can you can you lose your salvation well some people think you can something you think you can't and that that's that's really really important well we're this is where my original objection comes back and says okay but the the ontological you know the the ontology of it the truth of whether or not you can be saved is not the same thing as the epistemology of it right it's not the belief that you can't lose your salvation that saves you right so it's 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 just it makes that it makes that conflation all over the place yeah Pre prepare yourself for some cringe but just to, but i'll ask you a question uh i had this uh I had this online buddy for a while and and uh i didn't i didn't find this out until much later but apparently she's a lutheran uh so maybe that explains the cringiness but anyway what'd you say i said we love our lutheran brothers oh yes of course fundamentally disagree uh, with things but yeah yeah uh well so of course she's lutheran so she's a trinitarian but i remember her commenting at one point you know i don't really think that um belief in the trinity is essential to the christian faith and i remember thinking about that you know oh this kind of makes me think ironically i don't think it's heresy for you to say that i think that's really really wrong you know i think the trinity is about as important as it gets but uh do you have to believe that belief in the trinity is essential in order to be saved I don't, I don't think so. Right. 
Yeah. So I, I you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think this is, this is where, you know, like debates about open theists comes up and, and, and how you define heresy becomes very, very important because I think a lot of us are going to say, well, you know, uh, repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that that's, that's, that's how you're saved, right? On, on kind of the, the storyline level uh, question about what we do, um, you know, as, as reformed, we're going to say, well, behind the scenes, there's God regenerates you and it's based on your election and all that kind of stuff, right? But there's, there's the sense where we can say, okay, if I look at a, at a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, right? Have they repented and believed in Jesus Christ, but they get some theology wrong? Yes. Is it possible that they're saved? I think a lot of us are going to say, it may be the case if they have genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that God might save them in spite of their, you know, or despite their theology, right? But from our perspective, because they affirm flat out heresy, we have no reason to think that they're saved, right? So, so it's the difference, it's that difference again between ontology and epistemology. We have no reason to believe that that person is a brother and we shouldn't treat them as one because they are affirming things that are flat out heresy, right? But it, on the flip side, especially coming from, you know, a Calvinistic tradition, we're going to say we have every reason to think that they're not saved, but it's not that proper, you know, properly dotting your theological I's and crossing your theological T's is the thing that saves you. Right. So there, there, you, you have yeah. to make that nuanced difference. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I would go as far as I, and I'm happy to be corrected if you think this is wrong, but I go so far as to say that, man, they have, um, there are people in Mormon churches who are naive. They don't really know much about Mormon theology and they read their Bible. And so I would think that, yeah, there probably are somewhere out there believers in a Mormon church. And if they, continue to live their lives somehow eventually providentially they're going to get end up they're going to end up out of that church they will not be able to uh you know that's just the nature of true repentance is it is it will fix your your theology down the road yeah and that and that's part of that is is going to say because th this is where some of his question begs the question of, of his own view because he's going to go through and because uh, he thinks you can lose your salvation and and all that kind of stuff he's going to say well <clears throat> Um, you know, you can, these, these things are theologically important because if you think you can lose your salvation and you behave it, you know, or if you think you can't lose your salvation, but you really can, and you behave in such a way where you're just like, well, you know, I can sin as much as I want and I can't lose my salvation. I'm all good. I have my get out of hell free card. You might actually lose your salvation because you're wrong. Well, we're going to come along as reformed and say, okay, well, we just don't grant the premise right? We, we don't, we don't grant the assumption that you're coming at this question with, we're going to say that what we think is happening is that, that all that are gods, God will save and redeem and, and God will cause to persevere. And God will, 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 you know, will, will cause us to have the, 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 the good works and the fruits, um, that, that are the product of true repentance and faith and, and God will, and God will keep us to the end. So, we, we would just, without, without having good independent reason to think otherwise, we just don't think, we think that category of someone who is genuinely saved and, but think they can do anything and can actually fall away. We just think that's a null category. That's just not a thing. And we have no reason to think that it's not a thing. So, so for him to say, well, 
that, that, you know, you, you could be wrong about it. And so therefore you're wrong about it. If we assume that's just not a good objection. Right. He, again, we don't have yeah. independent reason to think that that's the case. Plus, and we, we've talked about this before. Um, this is kind of a side note, but just for if, in case people haven't thought about this, like surely you've run into Armenians and um, I, I'll just say this of myself. I don't know about other people, but uh, frankly, I, I'm ashamed <laughs> because I look at my Armenian friend and I think to myself, this man has a stronger view of God's sovereignty than I do. Like he lives his life praying. He he trusts him through very dark periods better than I do. He's a better Calvinist. Than, and so uh, like there is a, a praxic side to these doctrines where the person's heart commitment to them is really revealed, even if they walk around maybe not very good in the philosophical or, you know, academic parts. Yeah, okay. Um, but you can still be, you know, a walking, talking Calvinist in, in all other respects better than uh, a, a Calvinist is in his ivory tower. Right. Yeah, it's that, <clears throat> that, that uh, Whitfield and, and, and um, uh, oh, why am I totally blinking? Um, the founder of Methodism. I am Wesley. Wesley. Oh my goodness! I don't know how I forgot it. Where, where Whitfield basically was like, you know, I I know I'm not going to see Wesley in heaven because he's going to be closer to God. He's going to be so far closer than me that I'm not even yeah. going to see him. Yeah, right? Wesley so, was something else. Yeah, but we think deeply theologically incorrect. Um, but but we but as Protestants, we're not going to we're not Roman Catholics. We don't think that. There is this infallible magisterium that's that that has the necessary knowledge, uh, that ha that has the necessity to teach us what we have to know to be saved. Um, and I and and part of me wonders if Trent Horn actually thinks that, right? Does does Trent Horn think that? For for example, I, I mean, we you could almost push this entire argument back on him and say, okay, well, I mean. <clears throat> You, you say that the teaching magisterium is 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 necessary is a necessary part of the Christian faith, but do you think that Protestants aren't saved because we don't have the belief that the magisterium is a necessary part of the Christian faith, right? Well, if you're if you're a trad, you're going to say no, we're not saved. So maybe you can do it consistently, but I, he's not a trad. He's a he's a Vatican II Catholic, as far as I understand. He's going to say that we can be saved. We're separated brothers, as far as I understand him, right? So yeah, that's right. So I mean, the, like. It, it just seems that his objection, like he couldn't even answer his own objection because he's requiring us to have this epistemic certainty necessary for salvation that he doesn't even think that that is necessary for salvation. It's reminiscent of the Vincent. Vincent really likes those uh, uh, retorsion problems like the, the here it's the well do catholics actually have an answer to this question it's reminiscent of the whole uh hey you guys don't have uh you know the the canon you know the books of the canon aren't aren't listed there's no uh there's no list of contents in the bible somewhere so how do you know which books are which and then and bonson always was turning it back on him yeah but where's your guys infallible list of uh, uh councils you know, where's your infallible list of popes? How am I supposed to know which? And do you have an infallible list of those infallible lists? Like this is the same kind of. Uh, whoops! You kind of shut yourself in the foot there. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I, I don't know if you ever tried to look up the 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 actual count of things where the pope has spoken ex cathedra. 
that like there's debate about when that what that even is what which which statements are ex cathedra which one are that, like some lists have like two of them some have like he's really like it, it it's there's there's no there's no consistency on it. There's no way that they can answer it. They, they, they don't have the infallible list of the infallible lists. Um, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. I don't pretend to, to, to even know how they would even go about adjudicating that. Yeah. Or, or like they, well, <clears throat> how, <laughs> right. You, you have, you have the infallible magisterium teaching in, in, in the creeds and the councils, right. In the ecumenical councils. Well, don't you have to read and interpret the, the statements of the ecumenical councils? How do you infallibly read and interpret? Well, the, the magisterium teaches you. Okay, but how do you infallibly understand and read the, the, what the magisterium teaches you? It's just... Tyler, we have a living magisterium. It's able to, if you have a question, you just go to it and ask it, and it just shoots you an answer every day. It's a, it's a dynamic magisterium. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a dynamic. Sorry. Too snarky? Too uh, soon. Too soon. Well, actually, speaking of, uh, I, I uh, we we can go on to uh, you know, Bonson. I think I don't know if you have the link um, to to share for you, you had the timestamp for uh, the discussion with Idol Killer and and Ryan. Mo I think we're done. I, yeah, I think we're I think we're good on the trend horn. No, we're good. Uh, I I said around twenty one minutes. That was my uh, that's that's what I did. I watched the whole video, but I, I mean, just the 21 minutes is where I think it it says things. Yeah, he definitely he definitely says things. <clears throat> Attention, network oh. marketers! Stop prospecting. Got to get the, through the commercials. Yeah, get the royalties, whatever that. Oh, is. you guys gotta you guys gotta use my YouTube account. I I, I pay those dirty. Uh, scoundrels over at Google, <laughs> so I don't have to hear those. Uh, I, I don't. I don't pay. I probably should because some, sometimes I'm watching a video and or, or I'm listening like while I'm in the shower or something. And I don't know why. Sometimes I don't know if you can change it. I'm not big enough to have like the profitability feeds of the commercials. Like sometimes like there's a commercial every 30 minutes. Some channels it's commercial like every like five minutes, and the commercials are like five minutes, and it's terrible. Uh, all right. I have it on my main account, but I don't have it on the like the, the third man account. So that's really annoying. Uh, all right, so this is a discussion. Uh, by the way, uh, for for anyone listening, uh, if you have any questions, uh, you can put the questions in there. Uh, I also put the link if you want to come and join uh, the discussion and, and talk about any of these things. Uh, there's there's the link to the uh, the Streamyard. Uh, in there if you want to click and join. Uh, so this is a discussion between War McGrew, the idol killer, um, <clears throat> and Dr. Ryan Mullins. Um, and, uh, and 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 you can see the title, uh, why, why You Should Affirm. At, I think this changed. I think it originally was Why Every Christian Should Affirm Dynamic Omniscience. Um, it was like dynamic omniscience for everyone. Something like that, uh, and, and they're rewriting and, the books, dude. <clears throat> Something's changing. Very steam bears. <laughs> dynamic title about dynamic omniscience, it's living and active. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so what? What they're what they're going to be what they're going to be arguing. So so for everyone knows, Warren McGrew is a is an open theist. Um, so he's a non non classical theist and open theist. 
Uh, Dr. Ryan Mullins is a neoclassical, non-classical. Uh, um, uh, I'm confused. This interview actually left me confused. I always, I, I think he heavily leans towards Molinism. I always thought he wasn't an open theist, and I think formally he's not. But this, I don't know. He said some things it's that a, seems it's like getting close. Weird. It's weird. Bonson, I don't know if you had the same wanna... feeling through through the through this thing, where I was like. <clears throat> I, if there's a definition of open theism in here, it's the weakest possible definition conceivable. Yeah, um, so they're so they're going to be arguing that. So just just for everyone's know, so so Warren McGrew and open theists are going to say God dynamic omniscience is this this idea um, that what God knows is is dynamic. It's changing. It's growing. He learns things because he learns what the future is. Um, that's dynamic omniscience that everybody talks about, right? In, in that in that open theist uh, camp, right? And so they're going to say that's why God doesn't know future free choices of people. <clears throat> he knows what's possible, but he doesn't know future free free choices. Um, and I, I think McGrew um, somewhat hides uh, his the extent of his his open theism in, in this interview, um, and 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 Mullins. Seemed when when he says when he's going to argue that everyone should affirm dynamic emissions, he pushes it prior to creation that the dynamic happens prior to creation, um, in logical moments, not in temporal succession, um, and which is oh, yeah. Well, so there's a the funny thing is like Ryan's just like well everybody believes that God has you know the kind of curtain past knowledge right and you know. Warren's just like, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, uh, he doesn't actually believe it. <laughs> you know? He doesn't. Uh, and if you, it, I don't know if you all watched the debate yesterday with uh, Chris Dayton and Will Duffy. I, I mean, Will, Will, Will Duffy flat out denied that God has some past knowledge. Uh, God God can make himself not know things. Uh, you know, it's it's all over the map. It's uh, uh, his freedom is a hierarchy of uh, attributes and freedoms at the top. Knowledge gets the short end of the stick, which kind of works. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's let's. Uh, is it still on one and a half? No. All right. Keep it quick. What's that? Oh uh, yeah, keep it the speed yeah. quick yeah. here. Uh, let me just, let me just heads on. up. I'm, I'm probably gonna have to take off here real 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 soon. So if okay. you have a if you have a spot you want to jump to, go for it, and I'll uh, I'll come. Think- but otherwise, uh, I'll just I'll disappear. That adhere to Calvinism, Molinism. Um, you said you have an argument for why they should affirm dynamic omniscience. Um, many of our listeners find that terrifying and shocking and um, uh, controversial, to say the least. So, could you could you tell us how to get started on on that kind of argument? Yeah. So, there are several things that the majority of Calvinists and Molinists have affirmed throughout throughout history that I think should push them to affirm this dynamic account of omniscience that I just summarized. I love how Molinist is, is transcribed as Molinus. It's, it's not on them. It's a YouTube thing, but it's good stuff. Second ago. So first, uh, Calvinists and Molinists—they Molinists, agree that God is omniscient. Like you know, everybody wants to say that. And they're just going to disagree over which fa- like facts exist in the world for God to know. And now, second, so prior to Einstein, uh, like the overwhelming majority of Christian thinkers affirmed this dynamic theory of time. And in fact, when I go through all the different like scholastic textbooks and all this kind of stuff, um, like they even built this dynamic theory of time into their accounts of omniscience, predestination, providence. It's just all right in there. And then third, Calvinists and Molinists say that there is a moment in the life of God where these truth values about future contingent propositions are not completely settled. And so that's the part I really want to focus in on, because uh, that's the part that's probably going to shock a lot of people. Oh, no doubt. 
Yeah, uh, no doubt. I think your intuition there is, is spot on. Um, why why should anyone think that Calvinists, Molinists, that they would affirm that there is um, this moment in God's life where the truth values about future contingent propositions uh, are not completely settled? So the main reason is to believe this is because that's just what Calvinists and Molinists say. Uh, so here's like a really dirty little secret that gets glossed over in most of the discussions of Calvinism and Molinism that I see today. So both views say that there is a logical moment in the life of God where God does not know the future. Uh, and so I should probably say something about logical moments, then we can look at this distinction between what's called God's natural knowledge and God's free knowledge. So in the late Middle Ages, um, there's this Christian philosopher named John Dunn Scotus uh, from, from uh, Scotland. And, and so Scotus, he's not satisfied with these previous attempts to reconcile God's freedom with attributes like divine timelessness and immutability. And then he's also not satisfied with different attempts to reconcile human freedom and divine foreknowledge. So what he does is he introduces this concept of what he calls instance of nature, or what we now typically call logical moments. And so logical moments, they function like temporal moments. Uh, so moments, they describe the way things are, but can be subsequently otherwise. And so like a moment is a when something happens. And then also moments can be successively ordered in earlier than and later than relations. And so what Scotus claims is that logical moments are just like this, but they can somehow all like magically happen within a single timeless moment or even a single temporal moment, because he gives examples of both. So Scotus wants to apply these logical moments to his account of divine human freedom, divine providence, like, just like all sorts of stuff, because he thinks it can solve a bunch of problems in our theology. And what this does is this sets the stage for later debates between Thomists, Calvinists, Molinists, and, and all sorts of people even, even today. So what develops after Scotus is this distinction between God's natural knowledge and God's free knowledge. And in Molinists, they add something between those two, uh, which is called mill knowledge. And that's not going to matter too much for today. Um, but here's the claim from everyone. There are multiple logical moments in the life of God. And at the first moment, there is God with his natural knowledge. And at the second moment, logical moment, there's God with his free knowledge and thus foreknowledge. And so you see this in a lot of different people. So here's a Calvinist uh, named Francis Turton. So Turton says that God's natural knowledge is of the things that are, quote, nearly possible. Whereas God's free knowledge is just, quote, knowledge of future things uh, that God's freely determined to bring about. And then uh, there's this other Calvinist uh, named Richard Baxter, and he gives a slightly different take on this because he, uh, he posits three logical moments, or what he calls instants in the life of God, prior to creation. And this is actually like, a really common thing uh, for Calvinists because the Calvinists are constantly debating over the exact number of logical moments in the life of God, even over like, the, the order of them as well. Um, so you see this in debates over what's called infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. But anyway, here's, here's a direct quote from Baxter. So this is, this is exactly what Baxter says. So he says, God's intellect is relatively denominated omniscient in respect to three sorts of objects, also in three instants. One, in the first instant, he knoweth all possibles, knoweth, because whoever translated this was, you know, wanted to do some old English, I guess. So he knoweth all possibles in his own omnipotence. For to know things, to be possible, is but to know what he can do. Two, in the second instant, he knoweth all things as congruous, eligible, and volunda, because you got to just throw in some untranslated Latin every now and then. That's, that's what makes you really, uh, you know, like really smart. And that just that means uh, fit to be willed. And this is out of the perfection of his own wisdom, which is but to be perfectly wise, and to know what perfect wisdom should offer as eligible to the will. And then three, in the third instant, he knoweth all things willed by him as such, as volunda which is but to know his own will, and so that they will be. In all of these instances, we suppose the things themselves not to have yet any being, but speak of gods related to imaginary beings according to the common speech of men. Okay, so let me break this down a bit for us, because that's, you know, that's, you're just hearing what yeah, I mean, you hear some Latin there, so you're going to, yeah. for, those, for those watching that aren't as fluent as you and I are, if you, yes. if you could simplify that for our viewers. <laughs> right, we all, we all know Latin perfectly well. Just, right. yeah, anyway, so, 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 yeah. so what we're talking about here is the God existing all alone prior to the existence of the greater universe, and that's the classical position of Christian Nixon that's what open today say about Christian Nixon so it's something everyone agrees on. Uh, there's this actual prior state of affairs where God exists all alone without any created thing. And then from there, what the Calvinists and the Molinists do is they start carving up God's life into distinct logical moments. And so I want people to know something very important here. So at the moment of natural knowledge, God only knows what could happen if he were to create. So at this logical moment, God does not know what will happen because God does not even know if he himself will create anything at all. So as Calvinists like Terence Thiessen and Molinists like Thomas Flint, as they make very clear, at this logical moment, there are not even any true counterfactuals of divine freedom. They might ask, why? Well, because the future is allegedly open at the first logical moment of God's life. God is not yet determined to create at all, nor is God determined that any particular timeline should come about. 
In other words, there is no fact of the matter about what God will do at the first logical moment of natural knowledge. So facts about what God will freely do are contingent facts, and this fall outside of the scope of natural knowledge, which only covers necessary facts. By the way, for those listening, alethically open means that the truth value is is unsettled. It could be true, it could be false. And before you start that, Jimmy, how much time do you got left? Uh, not much, maybe a couple minutes. And do you want to finish? Because I think you already know where they're going to go. Do you want to say your thoughts now and let me ask you a question before you ditch? Sure. I mean, uh, so a couple of things. Uh, one, uh, I, I, I wouldn't get into the historical debate. It, it sounds like, I know for a fact there were thinkers who thought of it in terms of logical moments in God. Quick side note, there is a very ironic, funny uh, comment in Van Til, I think this is in his defense of the faith, where he mentions uh, rejecting logical moments. And uh, I think I might want to do the same, not not getting rid of the distinctions. I think the distinction between what God is thinking about, what God grasps with his mind in his natural knowledge versus his free knowledge. I think that that distinction is good. I think that gets the gist of what's going on. But uh, the idea of having logical moments, I think it's problematic be exactly because maybe we're making God's mind out to be too uh, analogous to certain things in the world that are not really meant to be taken as analogous. Uh, the other thing is that I don't, this it's weird to talk about the future being elliptically open because um, it doesn't seem like it's elliptically open. It seems like it's uh, undecided. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Right. But, so. The question is like, when you say it's alethically open, do you mean that, and maybe Tyler can jump in and clarify this, but is alethically open supposed to mean that there just is no um, fact of the matter about what the future is? Or does alethically open mean that, um, uh, see, I, I, can't even, I, can't even, I can't even word it. I think that's a good way. I, I think it, it, it's that there is no fact of the matter yet. It hasn't been. It hasn't been settled yet. It, it could be. It should, you know, something could be true. Could be false. It, there's just no truth value to it yet, um, to any of the propositions about about that, except for maybe that it's possible that it that it could be that way. Um, I think you're you're. Um, so, I think you're you're right. I think my normal my my normal thought about this is is that, I think we can talk about logical moments in a meaningful way. Um, but when they start objecting and saying, okay, well, because really the objection is going to come down to logical moments are effectively temporal moments, right? They, they have these before and after relationships. And so they're going to say, well, how is that meaningfully not the same thing basically as, as, as temporal moments? Um, and we're, we're, because you'll notice his critique is, you can, you can already see where it's going. His critique is smuggling in that <clears throat> at the logical moment of his, of his natural knowledge, prior in the logical moment prior to his free knowledge of what will be in in his creation what will be is a lethically open right but in there there's already he's already smuggled in this idea in these logical moments of temporal succession as if there just is the case that there is a moment it's it, his objection seems to be well, well we have to think of these as temporal because there's this there's this nat there's this moment of natural knowledge where the where the free knowledge isn't true yet 
right? And yeah. so it becomes true, and so therefore it's dynamic. Right? That's the, the problem is, is that in logical moments, it's not temporally successive that way. It's actually better to think of it in a dependence model, right? Where 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 it's not it's not when we talk about these logical moments, it's it's our way to conceptualize the dependence chain, not the succession of events chain. Right. So so yeah, it just, you, there even even though we can talk about the logical moment of natural knowledge logically preceding the logical moment of free knowledge. It's not the case that there was ever a time where free knowledge was alethically open. Right. It's God's 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 natural knowledge is just as eternal and unchanging as his free knowledge is. I should say his free knowledge is just as eternal and unchanging as his natural knowledge is. Yeah, I, uh, I, so it's funny you say that. I, I always thought that what theologians were trying to capture with the concept of logical moments is something like um, the different, again, this is just a metaphor, so hopefully people won't nitpick me uh, outside the uh, the video. But um, I was thinking a picture like a tree, right? You can you can imagine the, the roots of the tree moving into the, uh, the trunk of the tree, moving into the branches, moving into the leaf. Like there's this certain um, natural growth of this entity that moves from one stage to another. But, um, you know, at best, the closest thing you're getting there is whole and parts relations mm -hmm. uh, or some kind of evolutionary relation as opposed to like um, uh, becoming. Which was which you were talking just a second ago, and I went aha because you were saying you, you said it becomes the the next moment, and I thought, well, that's the key issue, isn't it? Right? If there's change in God's mind, that's the real that's the real kicker, right? Time is usually thought to be uh, synonymous with or parallel to change in some kind of way, and you can't you can't have an immutable God changing his mind about, but. Uh, Okay, whatever you whatever you think of moments, surely we think that the free versus natural knowledge thing is, is right. But I think like another uh, the big thing that I want to take issue with is uh, it sounds like there is a kind of ontological possibilism going on in the background that like God is like this um, creative author who lives in his library of ideas. And he wanders around reading these books of possibility, how, what he could make. And eventually he, you know, he pulls a book out of the library. And he's like, mm, I like this idea. I think I'm going to write a story about this. Right? No, that's not the very possibility of things. And this, this gets a little controversial, right? Because Calvinists don't all agree about this. But I would just push back on Mullins this radically. I would just say, I don't think the possibility of things precedes the actuality of things. I think it's the other way around. I think things start with who God is and what he's actually created and possibility emerges from what he has actually made. That's that to me is the right order of things. And right. then it makes so, God, so God God has to God has to decree and to create Tyler for Tyler to have possibilities. Exactly. Yeah. There is no, it wasn't that God could make Tyler and then he, he happened to choose to actualize that possibility. No, no, no. 
the very possibility of Tyler came into existence with Tyler when God made him. Yeah. And we would say that, you know, the possibility of Tyler is also grounded in God making it the case that, that Tyler is possible. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, I think going, going back to, 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 to the, to my original point also, you know, kind of going along with this is that, that it, it follows it, if you think of it in a dependence model, kind of, to kind of bastardize an example from William Lane Craig, he, you know, he's trying to do it in 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 that you can have eternal, you know, uh, causation. Um, but he, you know, he gives the example of uh, of a bowling ball on a pillow. Well, the dent in the pillow is is caused simultaneous to the existence of the bowling ball, right? You don't have to have the cause existing prior to the effect right is his point you can have you can have simultaneousness well i mean imagine that you had you had a, a, a eternal i mean I, I don't think this is coherent because i don't think you can have you know finite infinite successions um but imagine for the sake of argument that you had this, this eternally existing bowling ball on a pillow right so we can say there's the logical moment of the bowling ball causing the dent in the pillow and the logical moment of the outcome that there is a dent in the pillow, right? But they both eternally existed that way, right? It's it it's a it's a way to chop up the dependence relationship between the two. It's not necessarily a temporal temporal or a successive uh, way of talking about it, right? The, the the same thing is just true of uh, of the logical moments of God's knowledge. It's just. Logical moments are, are ways to dice up those and, and to conceptualize those dependence relationships, not necessarily that there literally was this time that, you know, time T that God had natural knowledge and time T1 that that caused the outcome uh, is successively of his free knowledge. Yeah, or, or it became that way, right? Like you use yeah. that word, and I think that's, yeah, once you start saying like God, be, like, or the next, in the next moment, God, yeah, that kind of language. So, uh, so I wonder, uh, so I wonder, and this, this gets into the different ways that Augustinians and Thomas and others have tried to talk about it, but I wonder if, you know, the older way of speaking of God possessing himself and possessing the effects of his will eternally was a better way of talking about it. I don't know, but I wonder what your thought is on that, because like you were just saying, right? Eternal causation, right? So it seems like from, because God is timeless, he's not, he's not um, limited to temporality. His very freedom and his ability to create things is really hard to imagine. And uh, it, it's not like there's a moment, like <laughs> you're trying to imagine something before time but the word there before refers to something that's not really temporal and you're trying to, you know, what, what do we put there uh, to that word before, right? What is that trying to capture? Do you think there's a good way to talk about that? Yeah. So I, I think, I, I think that's, that's right on because how many times do classical theists have to say, okay, well, we could talk about God before creation with the caveat that we don't mean temporally before because temporality is a feature of creation. Right. So we 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 have to kind of colloquially use our own language of before to mean logically prior, but in this kind of non-temporal priority to it. Um, and, and so we, we just have to caveat it that way. Um, and so I think we we just 
we understand in, in, in analogous situations that we have to use our language within the confines of our language to mean things, but they're, they're analogous. They're not exactly, you know, they don't map on, you know, exactly cleanly that way. Later Mullins will make these kind of like snarky comments of, well, uh, you know, I don't know guy, why God would reveal himself in these ways that are, you know, the exact opposite of, of how he, how he actually is. Right. So he'll, he'll, he'll reveal himself in these tense ways to mean that he's not tensed. And it's like, well, well, no, it, it, that's what that's what incarnational language is. It, it's 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 it maps on in a meaningful way, but it doesn't map on in, a, in an identical way. That actually close to my question for both of you. What do you think of like uh, you know these kind of tensed or indexical arguments? Like, how would you all go about uh, responding to them? Because I think in the background, that's really what another argument. I think they probably either wanted to or were thinking of going to. What what have, what what argument do you think they'd be making? Oh, something like you know, uh, it is now two forty one or something. Well, yeah. Can I can I? Yeah. So Mullins makes this Mullins makes this comment all the time. I I think it's a fair as a question. I think it's a very fair consideration. And it's you know if um, if God is atemporal, what does it mean to say something like God will exist tomorrow? Or that God did exist yesterday, right? Okay, that may seem like, you know, I can imagine a non-philosopher going like, "What the heck are you asking?" But the point is like, well, God's not tensed; he's not he's not limited to temporal tenses. So how do we even apply them to him? And I think that uh, like my because I have one percent battery, literally, my quick answer would just be like, I think the idea is that God um, can be spoken of in tenses because he is originally without tense he is originally atemporal but he enters the world he condescends to the world and interacts with it in temporality so he's you know look at jesus right jesus you could you could touch jesus you can see jesus becoming things but that's because he's god and man he's not uh he's not merely another flesh and blood person and he's not uh, just an illusion projected by God. That I think is like the, the that kind of incarnational logic, I think really unlocks uh, how to think about how God can be outside time and yet he can still interact with us and, and say things to us in time. Yeah, it, it's, it's almost, I don't know if this is a fair, it's not exactly, but maybe by way of analogy, we can say, I mean, this is a distinction between the language of predication and the language of identity, identity right? So we can say, uh, you know, I can give a couple examples. If I throw, a, you know, a coffee mug into the ocean, I can say that the, the ocean is in the mug, but I don't mean that the ocean is in the mug, right? Or, or I can, or you know, we 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 get in this in this distinction when we say, okay, well, well, you know, I can ask you both: is God is God triune? Right? Yes, God's triune, right? Oh, you asked me right when my internet. Yeah, not, not a rhetorical yeah. question. Is yeah. God triune? Yes. Is Jesus God? Of course. Yeah. Is it's Jesus really good, really is Jesus triune? No. Uh, right? Not so, really. Not really. Yeah, no. so, so you go into all kinds of things, but because what's what's happening there is there's this there's this play there's this there's this um, there's this equivocation between the language of predication where we can talk about something and this language of identity where we're saying what something is in and of itself. Um, and so, uh, you know, we can 
see Jimmy. Um, so we we can we can have these conversations. Uh, Otangelo, I'll, I'll, I'll add you here in a second. Um, we we can have these conversations where um, you know we we can talk in a predicate kind of uh, from our perspective in time. We can talk about God being alive today. Right, because we mean within within our reference to us, we we and that's how we understand him. He's alive. We're in time. We understand it that way, but it doesn't mean we're making the statement of identity that God in Himself is alive in this tensed today type of way. It's it's like um, the the example I gave in my debate with with when I had my debate with Warren McGrew, where he kept saying, "Well, God has tensed knowledge. He knows what's happening now," and I can say, "Okay, well, in 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 kind of a colloquial sense, we can say God knows what's happening now." But really, if we want to be technical, what God knows in and of himself is that God, God knows tenselessly with reference relative to our, our time frame that something is happening now, right? So, so I, I, I can know that when I'm reading the book of Hamlet, that Hamlet will, if I'm on, if I'm on you know, in, in act one, Hamlet will, you know, do such and such in act three, right? Does that mean it's tense? For me, that I'm somehow in myself in that tensed relationship? No, I know that tense fact in reference to another tense fact within that timeline that I'm talking about. Right. Uh, What's up, Tangelo? How are you? Yes, hi, guys. Fine, thanks. And you? Uh, we're good. We're good. Just living the dream. What do you got for us? What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I just joined. I've not seen the whole stream, so just seen that you guys are talking about um, eternity, I guess, God, um, timelessness, yeah. uh, and so forth, right? Yeah. So we, we're we're talking about so this video with uh, with Warren McGrew and Ryan Mullins. They're talking about uh, uh, Dr. Mullins is trying to give this this statement that we should that every Christian really should even calvinist and should should affirm dynamic omniscience and and i think the the point we made so far is that he doesn't mean dynamic omniscience that warren mcgrew means which is which is um kind of the open theist concept <clears throat> and that given some of the things we've said that that god actually when we're talking about these logical moments and natural knowledge and free knowledge those are are, are eternally eternally true there's there's actually no uh uh Alethic openness in in God's natural knowledge at a point in time, and so it's not actually dynamic. There's not actually a change in God's knowledge. There's just a way that we can describe the dependence relationship uh, of God's knowledge. So even by the watered down definition of dynamic omniscience that that Mullins wants to give, kind of the 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 the, 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 the very vague version of it, even then, I don't think we would still grant it. Right. So I've, I'm joining the first time your, your channel. So um, I think I've already interacted on Facebook, on your group maybe or so. Yeah. So um, are you an atheist? Can I know what your position is prior to contribute somehow in the, in the conversation here? Uh, so you're, you're asking if I'm an atheist? Yes. Oh, no, I'm, I'm a reformed Presbyterian. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, because usually who says be a free thinker um is related to non-believer oh, yeah. right yeah that, that, that's the play that's the play on words it's a freed thinker 
because we we should we should think freely. Uh, you know, the, the 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 institutional constraints don't force us to to think certain things, uh, but we are freed in Christ indeed uh, to think freely. So yeah, in that sense, I am a free thinker as well. I'm thinking free outside of the box <coughs> of um, naturalism and atheism and these kind of things. So. So basically, we are on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right, uh, uh, Vincent, you want to keep going through the? Uh, I, I think he says a few more things. Yeah, yeah I, I, I will leave you again because I thought this is an atheist channel. I like oh. it. Okay. No, so, no, no worries about uh, that. Yeah. Have a good afternoon. Bye bye. You, you too. Bye. And that is, well, I mean, it's gonna be shocking for people whose only knowledge of Calvinism is just the internet. So let's let's just dive a little bit deeper here. So let's look at that next logical moment, So which is the one that was called God's free knowledge. Mm -hmm. So this is another point where Calvinists and Molinists are gonna agree. So they say that after God decides to freely create a universe, then God gets this foreknowledge. So God's foreknowledge is dependent upon God's free decision to create a particular universe with a particular settled timeline. That's why it's called free knowledge. Uh, so here's what's happening. So at the moment of natural knowledge, there is no fact about what God will do. Will God create or not? Will he create this universe or maybe like a completely different universe? Maybe I'll just say, I don't want to create anything at all. Like, screw all of you. Like, God does not know because there is no fact of the matter. Uh, but at the next logical moment, God makes a free decision to create. And then and only then does God get the free knowledge because he's determined the truth values about certain facts of the future. And so this looks like dynamic omniscience because there is a moment in God's life where the truth values about future contingent propositions are not completely settled. And that is the moment of natural knowledge. And then however many you know moments you want to put in there before God reaches the moment of free knowledge. So... I think we'll see this bear this out. So even though he says, okay, let's, let's put a pin in this. We're talking about, we're talking, we're not talking about temporal succession. We're talking about logical moments. You can see then the way that he describes it and the talks about it. He is talking about this kind of succession of things um, specifically because he thinks that at the moment of, uh, of natural knowledge, God doesn't know what will be the case. But if we're talking about it in, in these logical moments in as, as ways to categorize and talk about dependence relationships, God also, God, you know, God, the, the dependence is, is, is from natural knowledge and free knowledge, but it's not the case that God doesn't know what will be the case because they're just both eternally part of God's knowledge, timelessly. And I, I like the, uh, the uh, earlier... Uh, so in the background, I, so you were dialoguing with Mullins on an accidental thread I started because I was just asking a little bit about what was going on. And um, uh, so in the paper, there was, um, oh, i got to remember what I'm trying to say, because there's a section under Calvinism, basically, and he was going to relate that. But to me, the paper it really has nothing to do ultimately with this. Mm -hmm. All right, roll the tape. Yeah, I, I read through the paper, too, and he's like, you know, and, and you know, to fairness to, to Mullins, I mean, he, he was like, well, you know, I, I'm basically going to be largely based on this on my paper. Uh, he sent the paper and I was like, I, I don't, there's nothing in the paper that actually, from what I could tell, that, that really makes this argument or supports it. And I still don't exactly see it. it. It's such a minimal thesis. Uh, like, say you, you just grant it all, right? It, I, it's not a victory for like the Warren McGrew side because no. you still have to affirm at the end of the day exhaustive foreknowledge, which is not anything Warren McGrew wants to touch. 
or present knowledge, which Warren McGrew doesn't want to touch, or past knowledge, which Warren McGrew doesn't want to touch. So is this really a W or is it just a reformed L? Yeah, and, and and even I mean, because because Mullins is gonna is gonna say that God God is not timeless, right? And so he wants to he wants to argue that that dynamic omniscience actually you know somehow somehow undermines classical theism, but even if we ignore everything we've said, where it's not about succession, it's not about you know all this kind of stuff, even if we say okay, well there's logical succession, right? Eternally, but there's this logically uh, you know successive between natural knowledge and free knowledge in eternity past. And God, God just is, it, you know, uh, unchanging in that regard. It doesn't get you neoclassical theism or a time-bound God either, right? So uh, unless he wants to move, he, he would need to give an argument for why this logical succession, which I still don't even grant, but why this logical succession entails a temporal succession to get a, 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 a non-timeless God. Um, and I don't think he, I didn't hear it in this video, except for um, it, he, he basically very, very quickly hand waves and says, well, I don't know the difference between that and time. I, I do. I, and, and I think I've given, you know, a couple good examples of it. I, you, you can't just go from, I make, I make this one argument to, I then just am incredulous to the difference of this other thing. So therefore my position is true. And I don't think he would say that crassly, but I, that doesn't actually demonstrate his argument or get him, I think, what he thinks it gets him. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I, um, I, I, I might, you might even describe these logical moments as God thinking, but we'll, we'll circle. That's a stab at me, by the way. Uh, because, and, th and this is where, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to be mean to, to McGrew, um, but he has been corrected on this so many times um, that he, it's hard to think that it's not dishonest um, because he was like, oh, well, you know, Tyler and, and, and Calvinists and, and these unnamed Calvinists, they say God can't think. Um, and repeatedly we've said, well, yes, God can't think how we think, right? God, God doesn't have, so he'll, he'll press Mullins on this throughout and be like, oh, well, you know, God has thoughts. And Mullins is right. Mullins says there's this rich tradition in, Christ, in Christian history um, about the thought life of God and, and, and divine concepts and, and all that and all that kind of stuff, which, uh, amen, we, we would all affirm. It's just that we deny that God goes through a thinking process of it. It's not a procedural process of, uh, of, of inference where God moves from propositions to knowing the outcomes of them because he goes through this inferential process. So God doesn't think like that, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a mind and thoughts and beliefs and knowledge. Um, so we, th this, this, that, that, that's where that, that stab comes in uh, and he continues to press it. And every time he presses it, it's just, uh, I, I, I'm at the point where I don't, I don't know how it's not just flat out dishonest because we've, we've, we've made that caveat and that correction so many times. You unmuted. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Back yeah, yeah, uh, stay tuned, uh, dear viewer. Um, can, can, you, can, can you give me um, an example of a Calvinist who explicitly says that God does not foreknow that he will create? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, so uh, one of my former teachers, uh, John Feinberg, um, so he's a Calvinist, and he wrote this very influential uh, systematic theology textbook called uh, No One Like Him, The Doctrine of God. Uh, and so what I'm going to read here is from pages 313 through 314 of No One Like Him. 
And so in my opinion, I think like Feinberg is a really thorough, excellent defensive Calvinism. Uh, so if you're really interested in Calvinism or maybe you're on the fence, like, you know, this is a place to go. So this is from pages 313 to 314. So here's what Feinberg says. And I'm not going to do an impersonation of Feinberg because um, I, I just can't maintain it for more than a sentence. So we'll so, send you another shirt if you do. <laughs> no, 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 sorry, sorry, John, I won't do that. Won't do that. Uh, so, but wouldn't God foreknow that he would create and foreknow which world it would be? As already stated, divine omniscience means nothing, or sorry, divine omniscience means, among other things, that God only knows what can be known. Until God decided to create and chose to actualize a particular possible world, there was nothing to know about whether and what he would create. Does this mean that once God made the decision, he came to know something he had not known before? Yes. But this is only damaging to omniscience and immutability if what he came to know was information available before he came to know it. God could be aware of all the possibilities open to him in advance of choosing any of them. But until he decided to create a world and which one to create, he could not know whether he would create, and if he would, which possible world he would create. Although this response may seem strange, I think that it is the most plausible way to understand biblical language that says God decided to do one thing or another before the foundation of the world, and that he makes decisions not arbitrarily, but based on the counsel of his will. And so what Feinberg's there is he's trying to bank off of passages like uh, Ephesians 1, uh, where it talks about God making some kind of plan, making some sort of like deciding to do something before he creates the universe. Uh, and so that's, that's what Feinberg says. Yeah. Oh, commercial. $453,000 in affiliate commissions in 60 days. Don't do it. It's a scam. Don't do it. It's a scam. All right. What are your thoughts? So I, I have a lot of thoughts about Feinberg's quote. Um, what do you think about it? Uh, I don't even remember it, to be honest. <laughs> are you not just listening? Uh, I, here. <clears throat> Feinberg, to sum up, Feinberg basically says uh, there was a time where God didn't know that he was going to create because he hadn't decided to create yet. And so he decided to create. And so therefore he, you know, he, he, he knew um, it seems weird, but that's, that's how we, that's how we talk about it. Right. That's, that's essentially Feinberg. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I have two thoughts about it. One of them is if Feinberg means that, I think in the way that Mullins and McGrew thinks that he means it, then I would just push back and say, okay, well, then I just disagree with Feinberg. Right? I, I, I just, I, I don't think about, I, I, I don't think there is, Feinberg seems to be talking about it in this, in this temporal succession sense, right? But the problem with that is Feinberg is a classical theist. Uh, and so Feinberg denies that there's temporal succession. He flat out denies it. So what we should do, and this is a problem that McGrew has consistently, and I, you know, I'm not that familiar with Mullins. I've read some of his stuff, so I don't know if this is pervasive in his work, but it seems to be present here. Is that they don't read people within the lights of what that person would mean by it, right? So I think I've read a lot of Feinberg. I think that Feinberg would essentially say the same thing that we would say about the biblical authors. And that is, we can talk about these things with successive language because it's how we conceptualize these types of concepts. But it doesn't mean that God is successive in himself. So Feinberg can say, look, we, we can have this meaningful way to talk about how God goes from his natural knowledge to his free knowledge. And he goes from not knowing something to knowing something because he, he, he has this sense where the, 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 the free knowledge is, is, is caused by is dependent upon the natural knowledge. Right. But that, 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 that language is analogical, right? It's human language to describe it. If you press Feinberg, he is, I don't think Feinberg would say 
that there actually is a moment where God doesn't know it. It's just when we when we conceptually talk about these logical moments, you have this movement and progression. But when but if you're trying to understand that in a temporal successive sense, not in this logical dependent sense, then it becomes meaningless. Right. So I, I think there I if if it's meant in the way that they that they would want to mean it, then I think they're misreading Feinberg. But if that's the case, then I would think Feinberg's wrong. But if he means it in the same way that we would understand analogical language when the scriptural authors say those types of things, then there's no problem with what Feinberg said. It doesn't support dynamic omniscience because God doesn't actually change it himself. At most, I could just imagine like the four positions are, let's say, a hard line to the right necessitarianism, right? You could take that, but really gets, so it doesn't become dynamic omniscience for everybody if you take that route. I think they even acknowledge this in the middle. Yeah. So you can take the hard line approach like that. You can do what Jimmy did. I think Jimmy just rejected that kind of logical uh, sequencing or something, you know. Uh, thirdly, you could say, well, it's kind of an uh, equivocation on ideas or something, or, you know, it's it's uh, whether it's cause or, or you know, dependence or instead of some kind of temporal sequencing. Uh, that, that way you can go about it, or you can respect the ball and take the model. I think no matter what you do, you kind of still don't get the dynamic omniscience. Uh, or, well, I guess if you push it a little, you could get neoclassical. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that, but I don't think you would get dynamic omniscience at least. That's what I, that's my summation of like the whole thing so far. Yeah, you would you wouldn't get you definitely wouldn't get dynamic omniscience in the way that the open theist means it, um, because the the if if there is some kind of dynamism, it's prior to creation, and God still from at creation has full extensive knowledge of everything about his create his free knowledge is exhaustive of everything that will be the case in his creation, um, so it's still it still is a you still don't get you know open theism, uh, you don't get that doesn't get you temporal succession because you can just salvage it in, in logical succession uh, which i still think is going too far but it doesn't it, it doesn't get you the 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 temporally bound the non-timeless god of the neoclassical uh, neoclassical is a mullins um so it's it, it it's it's just like i don't get if you have to if you have to water down this definition so much to try to get this like this point across that well everyone should have uh, you know should take the title dynamic omniscience, but you have to change what it means to make it so that people could affirm dynamic. It's kind of like the mere Molinism with Stratton thing, even, even though I think he's wrong. Even if, even if you say, okay, well, everyone, everyone should affirm, everyone could affirm mere Molinism. Okay, but even if we grant that, which I don't, that doesn't mean that Molinism, the, the, you know, the theological position <laughs> follows or is true um it's just you, you it's just like theological gerrymandering where you're just moving these boundaries around to try to be as inclusive as possible um and it just that that just doesn't work that way and i and i i, I you know my 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 skeptical side is going to be i i have a feeling sometime in the future and hopefully people watching this i don't really watch warren mcgrew's videos almost ever anymore um but if in the future he comes along and and said oh you know uh, we, we've already proven dynamic omniscience and everyone should be dynamic on, you know, should affirm dynamic omniscience. See, I had Ryan Mullins on and he proved it. And so therefore everyone should be an open theist. I like, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that equivocation between 
this super vague, watered down, logical moment type of dynamic omniscience, even if we grant that, is going to get equivocated with open theistic dynamic omniscience. I can almost guarantee it's going to happen. Um, so for, for anyone who does watch War McGrew, if you see that happen, you know, send it, send it to me. Well, it's gonna I, I remember he, so I watch actually too much of Warren McGrew. So I, I, I know I've watched the Tyler doesn't believe God can think uh, video like a, enough yeah. times. Uh, so, of course, I think he just did that because he lost that debate. So, you know, something for sour. Yeah. All right. Uh, did you want to keep going through this one? No, I think it's time to close up. Yeah. All right. We're a little over two hours. Uh, well, thank you, thank you, uh, uh, Vincent, for joining me. Uh, if you're if you're there, uh, this, this later. Thanks for thanks for jumping on. Uh, we'll do this another time. Uh, thank you all uh, for for hopping in, listening. A little over two hours. Appreciate it. Hope you found it uh, beneficial. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, you can uh, leave your comment here. <clears throat> you can email Freedthinker uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or join the discussion at the Freed Thinker group page. Uh, I highly recommend uh, The Third Man uh, on YouTube. Um, t- uh, head over and check out uh, Vincent uh, and Jimmy and some other people doing uh, some, some fun things there. And then, uh, Vincent, I always forget the blog. Uh, uh, it's the uh, the Council of Spirit of Tech. Okay, Council of Spirit of Tech. Um uh, if you want to send me a link, I'll put that, I'll put that in the notes. Uh, so, so much, so much resources there on, on so many different topics. Uh, it's really a, a, a helpful place to get a lot of information. So thank you again for joining. Uh, good night everyone. And God bless.